welcome to The Weekly Skeptic, episode 40. I'm Nick Dixon here as ever with Mr. Toby Young. And coming up, the top G schools the BBC. Joe Biden embarrasses himself by falling and Prince Harry embarrasses himself by speaking. Plus a bumper birdwatch and a bumper peak woke. But first, deep breath. I have to ask, firstly, are you okay? I don't mean Toby, I mean you, the listener, because we've all been traumatized. A daytime TV presenter has bummed someone that wasn't his wife, and it's a traumatic event. I just want to check in on your mental health. And of course, Toby, I'm parodying Holly Willoughby, who issued this absurd statement about the Philip Schofield shenanigans, where she sounded like, to me, like she was rebuilding a city after Hurricane Katrina. She said she it was a time to heal and come together and all heal together. And then she had a hug at the end with her co-host, and it was all bizarre and weird, and no one was really convinced by it. And let me just get what she said. What unites us all now is a desire to heal for the health and well-being of everyone. What are you talking about? You just, your presenter has been a bit dodgy. Who is healing? What are we healing from? What did you think, Tom? Yeah, I'm afraid to say I didn't actually watch it, Nick. But um, I did see that she was ridiculed for opening her monologue by asking you, the viewers, if you're okay. Um, As though, as you say, it was a kind of, they'd been through some kind of, national disaster of apocalyptic proportions uh, i just don't get the philip Schofield thing um i don't think i'm alone in that and uh it's not exactly an original take but i was trying to talk to james delipole about this yesterday on london calling and i was sort of working my my way up to saying i was sort of talking about how what a non-story it is and how it's got far too much press attention must be you know um, a really slow news month for it to have attracted headlines, you know, across the mainstream media. And I was working up to saying, you know, I'm usually quite sceptical when he dismisses something as, you know, just bread and circuses to distract us from what's really going on, you know, what the deep state are really doing to us in cahoots with the WEF cabal. Uh, and I was I was working my way up saying, you know, for once, James, I've got my suspicions about this one because it's such a non-story and yet it is being treated like it's got more press coverage than, you know, the departure of Liz Trust from Downing Street. Um, but before I could get there and, you know, offer him this olive branch, he immediately weighed in with, no, he thinks it's actually a really important story uh, because he thinks, you know, he, he, he he's a kind of <laughs> QAnon conspiracy theorist. So he thought this was finally, you know, I mean, he didn't flat out accuse Philip Schofield of doing anything unlawful, but uh, it was in the same territory as kind of, you know, our version, our kind of, you know, it was the pound shop version of Britain's QAnon conspiracy theory. Anyway, so he was all over it and didn't think it was a distraction at all. And it's a very important story to completely focus on. So yeah, I got nowhere with that particular olive branch. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's hilarious the one time you think it's a story non-story he thinks it is a story yeah that's like me working with lewis schaefer on headline is like every story is like this is a non-story okay and then like a massive story comes up and it and it, it's a non-story but then then one that is a really non-story he goes this is a story and you're like oh my <laughs> yeah <it's> very frustrating <laughs> but um i think i think there's more to come out i think that's why uh it may be a story i don't i can't say anything legally but I just, you know, I'm not making any legal claims. I don't know what happened. I'm just saying I think there's lots of things that people aren't saying. And that's why there's this discrepancy between it seeming minor and the, and the coverage is to me because people suspect there's more to it. That's what I think. I you know. think that might be wishful thinking, Nick. I think that um, at the beginning, when the story initially broke, 
Um, I think you're right. Um, the reason the tabloids in particular were lavishing such attention on this story is because um, there were elements of it that they couldn't disclose initially that made it a bigger story than it first appeared. And um, those elements duly emerged. Um, but I'm not sure anything else is going to emerge. I think I think we've now got all the details. And um, the fact that it is, I mean, I suppose, you know, Holly's um, apology to the viewers, her explanation um, gave it a new lease of life. But I'm hoping now, finally, that, uh, you know, this story is going to gonna go away all right yeah well i'm not sure it will i think it'll it'll run and run but um maybe we should move on to a more interesting one then another interview that was very interesting and it's a sort of similar realm which is tv shenanigans and it's the tate bbc interview so i believe it's lucy williamson who later locked her account but she went in and did a bbc interview with tate in his house in romania He's on house arrest, of course. The first interview he's allowed, he was toying with a guy from Vice recently saying he had to bring him a box of chocolates and there was a sort of standoff. And so the the Vice guy never got the interview because he didn't provide the chocolates in advance. But the first interview he granted was BBC. And it went pretty much as you'd expect, a kind of Kathy Newman-esque hit piece. I criticized it heavily on GB News. My clip has 327,000 views from that. And it seems like a lot of people are agreeing with me because they came in with... An, at- an attitude, as Lewis Schaefer said, it. they had an attitude. They came in doing a Kathy Newman-style hit piece, a James Clayton, Elon Musk-style piece. They could have come in and asked interesting questions like, what was it like in prison? You know, do you think you're unfairly charged? But they could also have challenged him, obviously. But you can do a good faith, as I said, a good faith, well-researched interview with Tate, and there's still plenty to challenge him on. You don't need to go in with this hit piece attitude. They're quoting old podcasts, something he said within the three hours that was a joke. You know what I mean? To an OnlyFans girl. That's obviously a joke. It's trivial stuff. And they're just completely exposed because we can all watch the 40-minute rumble version and they just come across so badly. And at the end, the woman won't even shake his hand. He says, nice to meet you, Lucy. Thank you so much. And always, because he's always polite. I've met him. And she wouldn't even shake his hand. And you just think, well, who's that winning over? That's just pathetic. And it's not that I'm saying Tate's perfect. And I know lots of people disagree with me for defending him. But I'm just saying this was not the way to go about it. And it just backfired on them spectacularly. What do you think, Toby? So wait a minute. Are you saying that after he siphoned the python in the GB News urinals, he then shook you warmly by the hand? <laughs> uh, didn't. I don't. I can't remember if he shook my hand. I don't think, don't think he did. I'm saying at the end of the BBC interview, yeah. he went around shaking everyone's hands, and they wouldn't even do it. I'm sure he probably shook Dan's hand. I mean, he's a true professional, but they don't look good by being unprofessional. They think like, oh, I'm not. I won't shake Tate's hand because he's a bad person. It's like that's not really professional, though, is it? Yeah, no, I did. I watched a bit of the interview um, and um, she, she struck me as someone who was trying to, you know, um, uh, she, she was very much playing to um, the kind of Puritans in her imagined audience. So she didn't want to be seen to be cutting him any slack. Um, uh, she, she, she wanted to come over as someone who really disapproved of him um, and, 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 and wanted to hold him to account. Um, uh, so she was sort of playing to this imaginary gallery the entire time and being very kind of pursed lipped and kind of disapproving throughout. Um, and he was he was seemingly kind of untroubled by this and batting away her questions. And whenever she confronted him with um, something she claimed were his words, uh, he would either deny that he'd said those words or claim that he had said them 
ironically or as a joke uh, and they've been taken out of context um yeah i did i don't think as a hit job it was a great success i don't think she came off particularly well i'm not sure that he turned the tables on her in the same way that jordan peterson turned the tables on kathy newman it wasn't a kind of open and shut gotcha moment in which she was exposed in the way kathy newman was exposed by dr peterson um, but nonetheless i think he did reasonably well under difficult circumstances and she didn't and it was clearly a setup if you see uh exactly how he'd been kind of lured into giving this interview um there was there was there was quite a lot of deception involved which is unseemly for a broadcaster which prides itself on being trustworthy and ethical um so yeah i, I mean i i i'm i'm not as um i'm not as big a fan as um Andrew Tate as you so understandably I didn't think he you know came off brilliantly but I did think he came off better than her yeah they sent questions in advance and then they abandoned those questions of course that was it was a trick I mean is that really what the BBC should be doing I think it's perfectly possible to start the interview look you've been in a Romanian prison what was that like you know is it quite interesting we, we haven't really heard from Tate saying what it was like in there did he get in fights what were the conditions like what was the food like we could have that was that's people would actually really want to hear that then you can say you can you can still get all the criticisms in and some of the things she said look you said this on your website that was where she was stronger where he's like well I, that's not on my website she's like well it's not anymore because you've taken it down so there were things you can get him on and those things are fine but you, why not just approach it as a journalist and you know if, if he's done bad things that they will come out and if he's done good things they will come out but this completely one-sided attitude, you are evil because you have a Bugatti and you are a misogynist. And that's just the whole, that's the, what they're trying to get from it. And they're trying to get him saying something stupid and then clip it. Yeah. And, and it works in a sense, and this, I said this in my GB clip, it works in the sense that they will get clicks. The Kathy Newman interview with Jordan Peterson has been viewed millions of times. So you will get views, but you'll debase your brand in the process because you don't seem professional. It's not an old style BBC interview, someone like Andrew Neil, whatever you think of him these days. He would have done a, a much better job. That's what we want—an old-style interview yeah. that, that gives the good and bad. And that'll, then he can hang himself if he is a bad person. Yeah, I mean, but wasn't it a little bit naive of him to expect, you know, the BBC to be much fairer and more even-handed than they were? I mean, it, it was a little naive of him to to completely believe, you know or take at face value the initial approach in which they said they were, yeah, they obviously sort of flattered him by kind of um, claiming that they, they took seriously his claims of, you know, um, uh, uh, there being, being a victim of a miscarriage of justice and being held without charge for so long and now being placed under house arrest and the evidence against him not being particularly robust and the Romanian authorities seemingly doing it at the behest of, you know, um, uh, dark forces and the rest of it. Um, he, he, he sort of naively assumed, I think, that, that that his spin, his version of events, which kind of depict him as the kind of victim of this kind of conspiracy, would be taken seriously by the BBC and they'd want to talk to him about that. Um, and that was a little bit naive um uh, i mean he he should have known ahead of time that of course it was going to be a kathy newman style hit job and admittedly he did seem he didn't seem completely unprepared for that he was able to kind of you know put up a decent fist uh, of defending himself but uh, i mean it, it was naive because of course journalists always 
um, uh, lure interviewees, particularly hard to get interviewees, um, by promising them they're going to be much fairer and even handed and more sympathetic than they really are. I mean, it happened. I I, I, I got the full court press by Emily Maitlis, as I've said before, uh, when I was cancelled uh, in 2018, when she wanted me to come on Newsnight to kind of, you know, to, to, to do exactly what this woman, Lucy, tried to do to Andrew Tate. I'm sure I wouldn't have borne up as well under that scrutiny as Andrew did. I probably, you know, collapsed in a sort of Prince Andrew style meltdown. Um, but, um, uh, but, but I think, you know, there was actually a book written about how the relationship between journalist and, you know, celebrity interviewee was in its very essence, a deceptive one. It was called, um, uh, it's called The Journalist and the Murderer, written by a New Yorker journalist called Janet Malcolm. It's actually very good. And it's about this journalist who persuaded a serial killer to cooperate with him for a book he wanted to write about, you know, this serial killer's victims and his trial and so forth. Uh, and and the serial killer felt kind of horribly betrayed when the book came out because he wasn't portrayed as sympathetically as he'd been led to believe he would by this uh, wily journalist. But, you know, Andrew Tate's been around the block. It's kind of surprising that he didn't realise that, of course, the BBC were just setting him up and wanting to take him down. Yeah, well, a lot to get into there, and I have a lot of replies to that. So, well, actually, it's interesting you mentioned Maitlis because she did an interview with Steve Bannon that was far more sympathetic. At times, she was almost completely falling for his charm, it was like, and, and you could say from a BBC perspective, he's a far more dangerous figure. If you think Tate's a criminal, then you might disagree and say, well, Bannon's just a political actor. But it's interesting her that BBC did a softball interview with Bannon. But anyway, to answer your other point, Tate wants to see the good in people. Clearly, he was being generous. He's like, okay, I'll take them at face value. Imagine you're on house arrest. You've just been in a Romanian prison and you're bored on house arrest. You think, it's the BBC, gone then, I'll give him a go. That's one answer. And I noticed Tristan in the background was more cautious he was set, you could hear him on the Rumble stream saying, see, I knew they'd do this. I told you, you shouldn't have done this interview. It was always going to be like this. And Andy was like, no, no, it's all right. You know, so that's one aspect that, you know, one, one idea that perhaps Tate just wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt, whereas Tristan being worried about his brother was more cautious. Here's another idea, though. Maybe it was 4D chess all along because Tate has now released a follow-up video. I don't know if you watched it. It's like a genius piece of work, I have to say. I don't know. I know people hate it that I like Tate, but it was genius. He said, now that I've done that interview, I've realized the legacy media are completely fake and blah, blah. And, he, and the BBC are an extremist organization. And we'll get into why I think that's a perfectly reasonable statement in a minute. Um, he said, the BBC are extremist, and I, I'm not going to promote this extremist propaganda anymore. And so I'm not going to do any interviews with legacy media anymore unless they give me $50,000 in advance for my charity. So he's got a charity that feeds kids. He says, I can feed them. For 80 cents, I think it was. I think he said he could feed over 60,000 children, I believe he said. Um, so he can, he's going to feed all these kids with the BBC's money or any legacy media. All they have to do, give him the money in advance, he'll prove it's gone to his charity, plus they have to bring him a box of chocolates. I mean, that is hilarious trolling, isn't it? And, and it also, charity would benefit. So I, and, and the reason I say he was right to call them extremists, we'll get on in a minute to this casualty clip where the BBC are uh, promoting double mastectomies and, and, in an unambiguous way and saying it's great. The BBC now are quite extreme. In their world, Tate is the extreme evil person. But in, in many people's world, it's the BBC. So I thought that video was brilliant. And I thought that's a, that's a, that was pretty great trolling. And maybe he'll get some money for charity. What do you think? Yeah, I'm not sure that um, he, he, he had intended 
to do that all along and knew in advance that um, it was just going to be a hit job. Um, but I guess he must have, he was prepared for that possibility because of course he did, he did film the interview um, uh, so he could release his video of it afterwards, um, which did, you know, portray the BBC in a fairly unflattering light. Um, I imagine, I, I, I can't help but think that he probably hoped against hope that um, the BBC would give him, you know, a fairer crack of the whip than they did. I mean, I, I can't imagine he would have agreed to it in advance if he'd known just how hostile she was going to be from the get-go. But, um, you know, had I been him, uh, uh, I would have, you know, and, and looked at it in a sort of clear-eyed way rather than a kind of self-pitying way, <laughs> um, then uh, I, don't think I'd have, I don't think I'd have agreed to it. Um but uh, yeah, I haven't I haven't seen his um, follow up um, uh, about giving fifty grand to his charity if anyone else wants an interview. But uh, I mean, I think it's it's what Andrew Tate. I think Andrew Tate's um, way of dealing with all these attacks on his reputation um, uh, is a good way of kind of retaining his core supporters. You know, he's he's not going to alienate his core supporters. I'm sure that you know. Um, lots of adolescent young men watching this are going to think, as you did, that 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 you know Tate um, uh, com- emerged completely victorious from that kind of gladiatorial encounter. Um, but he hasn't; he's got to do more, surely, than just keep his kind of fanboys on side if he's going to turn things around. I mean, he's still, you know, the trial is pending; he's under house arrest. Um, uh, he's he. It, it isn't clear how he's going to avoid a guilty verdict and a long prison sentence, probably in Romania, um, if he carries on pursuing this particular strategy. I mean, I don't know what the what the answer is. Um, you know, um, uh, and maybe he's saving, you know, um, some of the kind of more explosive elements of his defence um, for the trial. Um, but at the moment, um, you know, I can't see this particular strategy succeeding in helping him stay out of jail. Well, he's limited by the case. So he, he hasn't done any podcasts, you'll notice, and he hasn't done any emergency meetings. So he started up this thing, emergency meeting, him and his brother, it's basically a podcast. I was watching it when it had like 2000 viewers you know, before tape blew up. And They've said if they get, they said if they got fifty k retweets they'd do it. So they've got the emergency meeting coming up on the fourteenth of June, and they're doing it. He's saying at legal risk. So they weren't like when he got out. He said no emergency meetings was one of the conditions. So he's basically going to take a legal risk and do the meeting anyway. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes. Um, he, he's limited what he can say because of the ongoing case, and that that is a problem with him making his you know making his case in a sense. So, that, uh, yeah, I don't know. And there's little rumblings that the British government might do something as well. I've heard them talk about. So there is that. And um, the positive thing, by the way, from all this is that Tristan Tate followed me off the back of my off the back of my GB clip. And he did send me a nice DM. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to you know, reveal exactly what was in it, but it was supportive and um, full you know, cards on the table. But it's not like I've been defending the Tates because of that, because that's only just happened. I've been defending them on principle based on what I see for a couple of years. And it's the thing I get the most shit for. So let's see if I'm right. I just, can I add one more element to it, Toby? I don't have it in front of me right now, but we did another piece on GB uh, where I was hosting it, where it hasn't had quite as many views, but it's still got quite a lot of views, which is about the um, 
a podcast that he did where the Telegraph had just run this weird hit piece that read exactly like The Guardian. I had to check it wasn't The Guardian. There's a hand-wringing middle-class piece about, oh, I, my my sons watch Tate and we're all horrified. And he went on this podcast where he, the, the hosts were ridiculing him and he couldn't tell. And I could tell from her description she meant the Your Mum's House podcast with Tom Segura, where there was this, see, if you really know your Tate stuff, as I do, Tom Segura was ridiculing Tate's clips for a long time with his wife on this podcast. And then Tate would do reaction videos to them saying they're all dumb and stuff and, and rating them and stuff like this. And it was hilarious. Then they had him on and you could see that by having him on, they'd reconciled somewhat anyway. And then it was a hilarious episode. And Tate was saying, yeah, get me two coffees and all, you know, woman and stuff like this. But it's a joke. And this hand-wringing middle-class stuff, they don't see the humorous element. And as Tate said in his, 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 his BBC follow-up video. Everyone knows what satire is. Everyone knows what a joke is. Everyone knows what the internet is. And we do. But the broadsheets have to pretend they don't. And say, oh, you know, we were so horrified. Whereas I talk to my barber. I talk to normal people. I'm a normal person from a competitive school. We all get it. And Tate is from Luton. And isn't there a class element here we don't th- hear enough about? His dad, who was also attacked in the article unfairly, his dad was a chess genius, but he was also a, a black American without loads of money. And they attack his dad. They attack Tate. Why is it everyone I know from an ordinary background understands him in, inherently, people from council estates, my barber, all these kind of people, and, and middle-class broadsheet people remain a blob-type people probably, say, oh, it's, it's terrible misogynist. What about this? Have you thought about that? Yeah, no, I think it, I think it, Tate is a kind of bogeyman for precisely those people, isn't he? Um, he, he rejects the kind of uh, demonization of white heterosexual males and he 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 he's completely unapologetic about rejecting it i mean he's kind of challenging an absolutely core pillar of the kind of white hand-wringing woke middle-class ideology and so of course they it's not that they i don't think it's that they actually don't understand him or are deaf to the kind of irony um, or humour in some of the things he said. I think for the most part, they probably haven't spent much time watching these things. They've only read about them and, you know, there is no typeface called irony. Uh, But for the most part, they don't care. You know, he's just a convenient whipping boy to advance their cause because, um, you know, as far as they're concerned, he is living proof um, that if you do reject their kind of re-education workshops, if you haven't undergone, you know, um, a struggle session with kind of hatchet-faced woke diversity trainers, then you will be uh, a toxic male. And here's exhibit A in the case for, you know, undertaking these struggle sessions. Look, look, look at this bogeyman. Look at this demonic, toxic male. And look at all the terrible misogynistic things he's been doing. Look at the awful influence he has over our children. All the more reason to indoctrinate them with feminist ideology at their schools. And it's part, it's all part of the kind of, you know, this, this kind of irrational fear, the kind of... Um, woke middle class have of kind of unschooled working class men they who they they regard as kind of you know troglodytes and this terrible threat um so yeah it's not surprising that 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 that, that they attack him so relentlessly uh and i think i think you know that 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 a lot a lot of their claims that you know not to not not to not to hear the kind of register in some of his statements is just it's it's not that it's fallen on deaf ears it's that they've become they're deliberately making themselves deaf to it because he's such a convenient whipping boy
Yeah, well, disingenuous was one of the words Tate used a lot in that interview, and that would be the word for that. But it is funny, if they were a bit smarter, they could look at it and go, his dad's a, an African-American who didn't have much money, but was a chess genius. He grows up in, with no money in Luton in sort of dubious housing. Like, this could be a Netflix series. If, this could be a woke Netflix series, you know, a mixed race work, you know, man from nothing who was interested in chess. I mean, you know, why, why is that not a... A hopeful Netflix that's, story. That's not that's that's not the kind of woke story. Now they don't believe in equality of opportunity. You know that that's uh, they that's a conservative value now. No, no, that, that 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 would be a great Netflix series if Netflix was a conservative, you know, streaming company. But no, the woke version is you know he he's um um a a, a, a boy of mixed heritage brought up in this um deprived part of this decaying post-Brexit country sinking into the North Sea tries to tries to make it through sheer grit and determination but fails because of the racism and classism of this desiccated post-colonial hellscape that would be the kind of Netflix version wouldn't it the woke version right. of the story he's too successful for them I used to successful you think he gets some points for having a black a black father but maybe not you're right all right. Well, that's pretty much that. People might be sick of us talking about Tate, although actually people love our Tate discussions. I don't know why I said that. One of our best episodes was the Freed Top G episode where we debated it for half an hour. But um, let's have a look at this one then, in this related story. BBC criticised over non-binary casualty character discussing so-called top surgery. And I put so-called in there so that no one gives us a bad review thinking I'm endorsing it. This was, this was So I can't remember exactly what was said in the clip, but it was a character saying, yeah, I'm going to go and mutilate myself. I'm paraphrasing. And another character, who was, of course, a, a mixed race guy, said, said um, oh, great, brilliant. Let's put a cup of tea on and celebrate. Then an older sort of middle-aged white woman, she was she paused for a second, like, oh, which way is she going to go? And she went, great, good for you. And everyone said, good for you. And it was, yay, I'm going to go and destroy my body. Yay, this is a great thing. And what was Jeebus about this? And actually, GB have done an article about my clip about it, so I'm, I'm, I'm a bit notorious this week. But... What was so troubling was a couple of things. One, it's a family show. We all know it's not some late night edgy drama. Two is the fact that there was no challenge to it. This is supposed to be the BBC. It's supposed to be objective. If they're going to put propaganda, political statements within their drama, then surely there has to be some balance. Another character saying, well, is that a good idea? But no, it was just like, yay, this is amazing. So what is this doing in a family drama, Toby? This this sort of complete 100% advocating of this very controversial surgery. Yeah, no, it was um, pretty shocking, and um, it was broadcast at what eight twenty, so before the nine pm watershed, um, and it did seem to be absolutely endorsing um, self mutilation um, as a as a you know perfectly healthy uh, response to gender dysphoria, um, which is pretty disturbing. Um, uh, and, you know, the idea that there might be, you know, troubled adolescent girls watching this um, who, you know, are, are weighing up whether or not to kind of have their have a, you know, double mastectomy. Uh, the idea that they might be positively they might, you know, that, that they're, they're, they're wanting to have it might might be reinforced by that is, is, is absolutely horrifying. It's not the first time we've seen um, a mainstream broadcaster um, embrace 
um, gender ideology. Um, so there was a, an ITV series called Butterfly, a three-parter. Uh, similarly, I think it was about um, that was about someone transitioning the other way. So that was about a boy becoming a girl rather than a girl becoming a boy. Um, but yeah, it, and it felt very tone deaf. I thought that episode. Seeing the clip, I hadn't watched the episode, but seeing that clip on Casualty, it's like, it's like it was almost as though. I mean, Butterfly was broadcast in 2018 when there was very little opposition to this gender ideology. It was completely rampant. The idea that if you didn't kind of um, affirm the self-diagnosis of adolescents with gender dysphoria, they might likely commit suicide. So allowing them to transition, encouraging them, making it easy for them to get top surgery, bottom surgery, wear chest binders and so forth, was a way of, you know, saving their lives. That was kind of, that was the sort of dominant narrative back in 2018. But now, you know, that's been robustly challenged and it seems to be uh, gradually fading and you know there seems to be a much more balanced understanding now of um of the whole issue but that 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 that, that so that's so, so for the bbc you know the state broadcaster supposedly committed to impartiality to endorse this very one-sided and potentially quite dangerous um point of view was was yeah was very tone deaf i thought i agree and i put it quite succinctly in my tweet i just said bbc andrew tate is the most dangerous man alive also, BBC, please enjoy this family show about why mutilating yourself is awesome. Because they did. They kept calling Tate, like, aren't you, you know, dangerous and you're the so dangerous? It's so ridiculous. And that's why he said, you're extremist. You, he turned the table and said, you're the extremist. And I think that's fair when they're publishing or promoting stuff like that. And it comes in the context of this piece we also did on Headliners where it says, heartbroken father sues NHS to stop autistic son's sex change. And we've heard about these kind of things happening. But this was particularly disturbing because this kid was given two appointments at age of 17 and then sort of fast-tracked onto this irreversible treatment. The father believes he should wait till he's 25 because he has autism, but he's already being a, he's already due at 21 to have surgery. And, the, and they basically said if the father objected, they were, he was warned the child could be taken into care. And I just find, I know there are loads of these cases, this one was just particularly disturbing. We see this all the time, autistic children are being convinced they're another gender. And they think, as he said in the piece, he's been bullied, he has anxiety, and he believes this will be the, this will solve all his problems, which of course it won't. Mm. Yeah. And it, this is going to, this is going to come up again, and there's going to be um, a national debate about this, I think, with the current government's um, introduction of the um, conversion therapy, open brackets, prohibition, close brackets bill, uh, which has been delayed. It was, it was supposed to be published uh, last month, um, but it's been delayed. Um, but we're expecting it to be published this month, and then there's going to be some pre-legislative scrutiny, um, and all the combatants on both sides are going to start going at it. But one of the one of the objections to the um, conversion therapy prohibition bill is that it will include in its definition of conversion therapy um, uh, providing adolescents with gender dysphoria with um, uh, therapy as opposed to, you know, um, gender-affirming care. Um, uh, anything other than confirming the self-diagnosis of a troubled adolescent who may be suffering from autism um, will be prohibited, or at least that's the fear. We haven't actually seen the detail of the bill yet, but other conversion therapy bans, um, such as the one in the state of Victoria in Australia, certainly do criminalise efforts to talk children out of embarking on these irreversible medical 
pathways. Um, even I think in the state of Victoria, um, uh, if a parent withholds permission or tries to stop um, their child from um, uh, taking beat, taking um, puberty blockers, uh, that that is now a criminal offence. Uh, pretty shocking. So um, perhaps this bill won't be as bad as that. Perhaps there'll be kind of carve-outs uh, and it will, for the most part, only ban what we all think of as conversion therapy rather than, you know, any attempts to dissuade adolescents from having these medical procedures, which um, can't be reversed and which they often come to regret bitterly. Yeah, I know it's very sinister. The use of conversion therapy is, if, you know, which we all sort of think of in our head as this terrible thing, but actually often just means talking sensibly to a child about why they shouldn't mutilate themselves. Um, do you want to have a quick look at this Mizzy thing? Or, I mean, I didn't actually watch it. I'll be honest with you. Normally I've watched everything, but this one I watched a clip of where they had Mizzy on Newsnight and people were saying, why are you promoting this criminal basically uh, and giving him the chance that he's been on a few things. He was on talk TV, wasn't he? And uh, that uh, Andre Walker started shouting at him and then he left. That was all a bit weird. And then it came out that Tate was coaching him. I'm not sure if Mizzy was given permission to share these messages. He shared a load of messages. He had said that that both the Tate brothers were helping him, but then he actually released the messages of Andrew sort of giving him guidance saying, just say this, don't say this, you know, trying to help him in his media appearances. So they are actually trying to help him. What do, what do you think of the Mizzy Newsnight and the Tate-Mizzy crossover? Yeah, I, I wasn't aware of the um, Tate-Mizzy crossover. Um, <laughs> uh, but... Um... And I didn't, like you, I didn't watch Mizzy on Newsnight, so I don't feel particularly well qualified to comment on it. I did see a bit of his interview with Piers Morgan. I didn't I didn't understand why Andre Walker um, blew up. Um, supposedly something he said to a female guest, he supposedly He was her. allegedly glaring at the other, at the pundit. Was it Reem who was on? And he, he sort of did this sort of street sort of glare at her and he felt he was being intimidating. Right, okay. Um yeah, I mean, I, 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 it feels like you know um, the silly season has come early this year. I guess Parliament is in recess, um, uh, so maybe. But it feels like a silly season story, um, as does the Schofield imbroglio. I mean, I can't get very worked up about it. I mean, he just seems like an antisocial git who shouldn't be given any attention at all. But I don't think I'd go so far as to criticise Newsnight for, you know, having him on. I mean, for better or worse, he has inserted himself into the national conversation. Um, and uh, uh, so, you know, it's a story and it would be hypocritical of me to call for him to be no platform, given that, you know, um, I'm the general secretary of the Free Speech Union and we're frequently coming to the defense of people who are no platform. But and, and anyway, I don't think he does himself. I don't think he does his cause um, uh, uh, much good by appearing on talk TV and Newsnight. Every time he appears, you know, his star seems to fall even further. Um, you know, it, 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 people talk about it as a kind of social problem, as being emblematic of today's youth and you know this is we've created this kind of the, the 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 this this monstrous generation of attention whores because social media tiktok um uh but you know i it's not it's not complicated the police should just be doing their job and stopping him from getting away with this you know what what is clearly criminal behavior in many instances uh you know it, i don't i'm not going to blame tiktok I'm not going to blame the messenger. Um, he's the one at fault and uh, the police should be punishing him and stopping him doing these kinds of things. Yeah. And it was Reem Ibrahim, by the way. She's uh, 
works for IEA, London is Libertarian, pops up as a pundit on a lot of stuff. And yeah, he was sort of staring at her and Andre went mental. But yeah, and, and there was a Piers Morgan interview, yeah, of course, where he said, UK laws are weak. But now Tate is trying to help him. He's saying, look, he's this misguided young man. This is what I'm here for. These are people I try and help. Not quite sure we're ready for the for the Mizzy Redemption story because he is a sort of nasty criminal. He's done some awful things. But let's see. Maybe with the guidance but, of Tate, he can be rehabilitated. But hang on a second, Nick. I mean, g- given that, given that um, Tate seems to have taken him under his wing, why not? Um, why not extend the same benefit of the doubt to Mizzy as you do to Tate? You know that you could say that a lot of his activities aren't supposed to be taken at face value. It's just middle class prudes sort of turning a deaf ear to the registers in his kind of social media activity. It's part of a kind of social media trend so you know and it it's it a kind of it, it's not it's not something he's invented he's not just doing it spontaneously because he's cruel um you know this is a, this is it's just a prank gone slightly too far but if you understand the kind of context and the kind of lingua franca of tiktok then it's not nearly so shocking and maybe just as um uh, that there may be a degree of class and racial prejudice in the condemnation of tate isn't there perhaps a degree of class and racial prejudice and the outrage about Mizzy. How come you're not being as charitable towards him as you are to Tate? Well, the obvious reason is there are no charges against Tate, whereas Mizzy, we've seen, enter people's homes, which Tate would never do, and obviously in a threatening way, it's inherently threatening. He's gone up to people, young women, and said, do you want to die, which is absolutely sick and obscene and incredibly dangerous. Incredibly dangerous going up to anyone saying that. He's gone up to various people. They could run into a bus. They could attack him back, and then they could end up in jail. Who knows what could happen? He's done a series of obvious crimes. That's a big difference. He's also completely remorseless about it. And he, he just, however, and by the way, you know you're in trouble when the Tates are helping you with PR with the mainstream media. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like, it's kind of it's yeah. pretty funny. But, but, but yeah, but, uh, uh, there is a but, quick caveat, Toby. Yep. Of course, if he is genuinely. And if he is genuinely going to redeem himself and is listening to advice and isn't just playing us all, of course I would be open to that. If if he really did, then do a load of good after this. Said, yeah, I was an idiot. I was young, and now I'm on the right path. I'm kickboxing. I'm living in Romania in a big warehouse. You know, of course I would be open. You know, I'd like to see Tate sparring Mizzy. To be honest, that would be hilarious. But I'm open to his redemption story. I'm just not sure we're quite there yet because I don't quite believe him yet. But if it's genuine, then I'm open to it. Yeah, um, I suppose. Yeah, you're the different. I mean, you said the difference was that Mizzy had engaged in criminal activity, whereas Tate hasn't. And I appreciate you, you know, extending the presumption of innocence to Tate, but it's possible that he too may have engaged in criminal activity, uh, even though those charges haven't yet been proven. But I suppose the critical difference isn't that isn't that neither of them have engaged in criminal activity. I think that we can definitively say that. The difference is that Mizzy was foolish enough to actually film himself engaging in the criminal activity. I mean, and, 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 and as, as far as we know, there isn't any, you know, video evidence, although perhaps some may be produced in the forthcoming trial. There isn't any video evidence that uh, Tate is guilty of the things he's been accused of. There you go. You just made my case for me. <laughs> so pro Tate, but we're not sure about Mizzy. That's, that's the position. And, um, and I get every day, by the way, every day I get people saying, oh, I can't believe you're defending Tate. It's like, why do you, and they tell me like, why do you think it's going to work telling me I can't have my opinion? Who are these people? I get trolls, not trolls, but just, you know, followers telling me 
that I can't defend Taters almost every day. But why do you think that's going to work on me? Have they met me? It's like, since when do I, are my opinions, you know, dictated to, by, dictated by punks? Well, anyway, it's, it's not that they're trying to, note. it's not that they're trying to change your mind. It's that they're trying to advertise the fact that they disagree with you because, you know, they think they'll get points for being morally correct. Right. Yeah. But there's a way they do it. They always, the way they do it is always so presumptuous and sort of like, just judgmental it's really annoying anyway but they can do it um i was actually going to host a debate we we're not we we're not able to organize it where it's going to be me and carl benjamin defending tate against uh calvin and, my, and uh rory who works on my podcast and it was they were going to be against tate that would have been really good we couldn't get everyone's times together but you know that would have been really interesting and there's loads of people on my side sort of broadly so-called my side are actually against tate but anyway let's carry on and do prince harry another young man that needs redemption Maybe Harry should join the war room. I'd, lo- I'd love to see him joining Tate's war room, sparring with Tate, sorting himself out, becoming a more masculine man. That would be great. Um, <laughs> you know, having multiple, cheating on Megan with multiple partners. <laughs> I don't know what would happen. But um, anyway, so Prince Harry, is be- he's become the first senior British royal to give evidence on a witness stand in 132 years because he's suing Mirror Group newspapers alleging the publisher's journalist hacked his phone and used other illicit means to gather information about his life between 1996 and 2009. And he's made this extraordinary statement where he says, the state of our press and our government, both of which I believe are at rock bottom. So he said they were both at rock bottom. And with the press, you kind of go, fair point. The government, that's more questionable. I mean, yeah, they've not been great, have they, the Tories? But, but whether the royals should be making statements like that obviously is a massive break with anything our beloved Queen would have done. What do you think, Toby? Yeah, I don't think it's going terribly well for Harry. I mean, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that he'll lose this case and then have to pay massive costs. Um, but I think it's 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 looking more likely than not at this point. So he didn't he didn't he didn't get off to a good start yesterday when he didn't show up for the first day of the trial. He was expected in court to give evidence, and the judge was apparently quite irritated that he was a no-show and his excuse was that he was he, he wanted to be there for one of his children's birthdays um which is not a great excuse i can't see that you know um persuading the judge to to, to smile benevolently and say oh well of course he's such a great father i i, I forgive him um so, so it didn't get off to a great start and then today um tuesday um it doesn't seem to be going particularly well so harry harry has submitted this what 158 page or something witness statement uh, in which he goes through i think something like 17 instances of stories that appeared in mirror group newspapers uh, which he claims were obtained by unlawful means and the person you know the barrister acting for mirror group the mirror group um, keeps pointing out to him whenever they kind of talk about one of these stories that actually all of the things which harry claims were could only have been obtained through unlawful means such as phone hacking or getting hold of medical records um were actually in the public domain you know um uh, and 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 a lot of them are kind of you know kind of uh, clearly the media flying kites you know, harry harry is very upset about um the cancer diagnosis of the head gardener at sandringham you know and uh, and harry said how could they possibly have known that 
um, if they hadn't hacked my phone and heard me talking to my father about the gardener's cancer diagnosis, well, you know, they could have just made it up, you know, which is what they do 99% of the time when they're running these stories about the royals. Um, and, you know, they make things up. Of course, occasionally they're going to kind of get things right, you know, just like a clock you know, a stuck clock is right twice a year, um, twice a day. So, you know, uh, the whole case that this information could only have been obtained illegally seems to me to be pretty flimsy. So I don't think it's looking great for Harry. Yeah, I heard on GB News, from my, my, my recollection, he, he had it looked, brought in something like 102 stories. He just had loads of examples, but a lot of them were very flimsy, as you say. Um, and there was an interesting thing that Tom Slater posted, actually, on Twitter, where let me just let me just get this. Sorry, guys, I'm a bit hungry and not feeling that well today, so I'm not I'm not totally on it. So he had this uh, statement where he said that people could have easily gone, you know what, you're an idiot. I've read all the stories about you, and now I'm going to stab you. So his idea was that Harry, you know, people read bad press about Harry, and this will directly lead to people stabbing him in the street. Did you see yeah. that? Yeah, that that's odd, isn't it? Yeah, he, he, it's it, it's an odd claim um, that, that is often made by plaintiffs in court um, that the uh, person who's libeled them or the tabloid newspaper that has published this scurrilous story about them is endangering their lives. It's not that they didn't like it because they want to be able to control their own publicity. It's that this this story endangered their life. And then they can point to kind of death threats they got on Twitter because, you know, you don't have to look very far on Twitter to find death threats. I get them all the time. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, pretty, pretty, pretty flimsy. But I think, you know, I think... Um, I mean, I guess it partly depends on how woke the judge is. It's possible he may be quite on side and feel quite sympathetic towards Harry. And Harry may, you know, may present quite persuasively as, you know, as a poor beleaguered victim who is kind of um, being driven to suicide or being driven to, you know, driven out of society, driven to his death by the, you know, merciless British tabloids, just like his mother was. Uh, you know, I, that's clearly what he, the, that, 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 that seems to be his strategy to persuade the judge of that. But, you know, let's hope he doesn't fall for it. Yeah, and it seems that he accused the press of hacking his mobile phone two years before he had one, which wasn't, wasn't great. And um, yeah, and as you say, the motivation all comes from his mother and, and that was obviously terrible and tragic and they certainly did hound his mother. And... Clearly, he's on a on on a uh, on a mission for revenge about that still, or for some sort of closure. I guess the word is these days. But he's not going to get it from this. That's the tragic thing: is that there is there is a, a point where Harry is sympathetic, which is the, the death of his mother, the treatment of his mother by the press. I think there is something there. Even when I watched the documentary, that was the part I sympathised with. And everything since then is just wrong. You know, Meghan, everything he's done is constant complaining, is revealing everything in his awful book. It's all wrong. That's why I had that dream about him. Where I was trying to persuade him to stop all that because although he's got a central grievance there, he's going about it completely the wrong way. And it's interesting that Megan's sort of distant, isn't it? I mean, is she just like wound him up and let him go? Or is she actually thinking now he's doing some crazy things? I, it's interesting, isn't it? She's been very in the background for a long time. Yeah. I mean, clearly he, he is in some way, you know, trying to avenge himself uh, 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 get revenge on on the tabloid press for you know what they did to his mother but it's a sort of it's it, it seems to be a kind of i mean a misunderstanding or at least a, a a highly selective understanding of what his mother's relationship was with the press quite similar 
to the story told by her brother, um, Earl Spencer, when he gave that kind of riveting um, address um, at her funeral, in which he described her as the hunted, a woman who'd been hunted all her life by the tabloids and was eventually kind of killed by by them. Um, but actually, she 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 cooperated with the tabloids. You know, she cooperated with um, many royal correspondents and authors of royal exposés. Um, uh, she 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 wasn't kind of someone who was kind of you know desperate to guard her privacy, never had any truck with the press and was just hounded by them 24-7. She was constantly kind of playing footsie with them and collaborating with them. And, you know, seemingly that's what the royal family, including Harry, probably have been doing for time immemorial. So to try and now cast themselves as these completely innocent victims of this kind of merciless tabloid machine, I think is pretty disingenuous and unconvincing yeah she definitely had an ambiguous relationship or yeah ambivalent relationship it wasn't completely one-sided as you say and um okay and there's there's do you want to also do this heritage foundation lawsuit that's being brought against harry which is a conservative think tank in america which in a, in a pretty funny way uh, suggesting that harry may have trouble getting into america or why was he allowed into america given that he's admitted to drug taking in his book and apparently you don't have to be convicted of it or anything like that you just have to have said you've done it, and that could be enough, in a, certainly in a normal citizen's case. Though I find it very hard to believe the woke Biden administration will oust Harry from the country. And the downside of that, Toby, would be that he'd end up back here and we'd have to deal with him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, poor old Harry. I, I might actually begin to feel sorry for him then if he was uh, kicked out of the US, uh, you know, um, uh, by Homeland Security because in spare he admitted to taking cocaine. Uh, which is a criminal offence, and when I think the 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 critical, I mean, the Heritage Foundation has filed a Freedom of Information uh, lawsuit, um, and they're trying to force um, uh, the authorities to release uh, Harry's immigration records because when you travel to the United States, you have to um, fill out this form in which you say you have to disclose if you've ever committed a crime uh including i think whether you've whether you've taken class a drugs and um and i guess that the suspicion is that um harry said no he hadn't on this form and so once they get hold of this form they've got him banged to rights he lied on his immigration form why was he admit you know now we know the truth let's kick him out of the united states um who knows where it'll end up but as you say under the biden administration i can't i can't imagine that um he will actually be kind of you know sent deported uh, uh in in economy on a virgin atlantic plane <laughs> You know, would be bants, but probably won't happen. Um, all right, well, that's probably enough Harry stuff. Um, I'm flagging a bit. I need to go and eat a banana or something, which I won't do on air because that one time I ate the sandwich and got in trouble. But um, but should we have a quick look at this uh, lockdown story? Well, it's really two stories in the Telegraph. Pretty massive. The first one was ministers had secret unit to curb critics of lockdown. Incredibly disturbing. This counter disinformation unit was set up by ministers to tackle supposed domestic threats and to target those critical of lockdown. And of course, as we find with this stuff, the Telegraph say many of the issues being raised were valid at the time and have since been proven to be well-founded. And this is a key point that it became illegal or in some way not allowed or disinformation to go against the government narrative, even if you were right. 
And, and and when the narrative changes, then you're allowed to do it, like with the Wuhan lab leaks theory, but only when it changes. So you must adhere to the narrative at all times. And they even had a counter disinformation unit. And the BBC also took part in secretive meetings of a government policy forum to address the so-called disinformation. And now we've seen them set up BBC Verify, it'll probably be more of the same. But the activities of Carl Hennigan, of course, epidemiologist and expert, uh, and others were monitored by government disinformation units. So it's a lot like when you were monitored by the 77th Brigade, Toby, possibly even worse. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the, the government claims, so they're, they're, they're pretty much there. Well, they, they have, I guess, a, a two-pronged defense. The, the first prong is we never monitored individuals, so we cannot be accused of having spied on particular individuals. We only ever monitored all social media activity and used our AI-powered algorithms to identify misinformation and disinformation about the government's pandemic response, um, including the vaccine rollout. Uh, and if, if, if those algorithms happen to flag up some, some posts by um, uh, uh, Molly Kingsley, uh, one of the co-founders of Us For Them, a group that campaigned against school closures during the lockdown, or Carl Hennigan, Oxford's professor of evidence-based medicine. That's not because we were targeting them. It's because in this trawl of um, uh, anti-government tweets, some of their posts and, and posts on social media, some of their stuff came up. So that's the, And then sec, the second prong of their defense is that after identifying you know, these particular posts, we, 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 didn't, we didn't ask social media companies to remove them. Um, uh, we, we may have used our trusted flagger status to highlight them. And we may have pointed out um, that these posts were um, uh, prohibited under the terms and conditions of these social media platforms. But we didn't actually explicitly ask the social media platforms to remove them. That was their decision. Pretty weak defense. Um, and as you say, there was this um, social media policy forum. I'm not sure if that's exactly what it was called, um, which the BBC was in, which Facebook was in, where presumably um, uh, uh, some of the misgivings um, uh, officials and politicians had about certain posts on social media were aired and pressure was applied to companies like Facebook and Twitter to remove them. And now Molly Kingsley, I don't think we've quite got the smoking gun yet. What we really need is um, an actual email from you know a Whitehall official or even better, a minister to an executive at Twitter or Facebook, you know, demanding that a post by Carl Hennigan or Molly Kingsley or me uh, be taken down. And I don't think we've quite got that smoking gun yet. And Molly Kingsley has actually asked Elon, Elon Musk to cooperate uh, with an investigation she wants to launch with a view to perhaps bringing um, uh, 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 a lawsuit um, against taking legal action against the government for um, uh, interfering in her liberty in this way. She wants Elon Musk to uh, look through you know the Twitter files and see if there is a smoking gun there. But it, it is it is pretty bad. I mean, it's um, we kind of knew about this already. The conservative woman, I think, first started talking about the activities of the counter disinformation unit um, in the DCMS and the other various units in different Whitehall departments, Department of Health and the Cabinet Office. Um, I think they they first flagged this up 
and the 77th Brigade back in 2020. And then, of course, Big Brother Watch produced this big report uh, about it about six months ago. And that's where I was identified as someone um, who was discussed, you know, within DCMS um, uh, because of my social media activity and my journalistic activity. I think one of the reasons the Telegraph has kind of got the bit, bit between its teeth is because one of the things flagged by one of these units um, was an art- were articles Molly Kingsley wrote for the Telegraph. And um, Molly Kingsley, I mean, she, she, she was flagged, I think, for... Uh, arguing that children shouldn't be vaccinated. Um, uh, but she was also flagged for arguing against school closures. And I think, you know, may- maybe the authorities haven't yet completely accepted that, you know, um, it's not a great idea to vaccinate children who are at minimal risk uh, from COVID. Uh, but I think it's now pretty broadly accepted that school closures caused far more harm than good. Um, so to flag her for challenging what was clearly... And I think now, you know, a widely admitted to be disastrous government policy does seem unbelievably draconian. Um, Anyway, it's hard to know where it's going to go, though. I mean, I think um, it's remarkably similar to um, uh, the stories uncovered by the Twitter files by Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger and others. Um, And they're coming to London, interestingly, at the end of this month to try and forge a kind of UK-US alliance against the censorship industrial complex. And it isn't just isolated to the US and the UK. It's also happened in other parts of the English-speaking world, like Canada and Australia and New Zealand. Um, So it's definitely a kind of serious problem. Um, And um, I hope something can be done about it, but the government doesn't seem to be, the current government doesn't seem to be inclined to kind of stop doing this. Um, and uh, I don't think the co- the official COVID inquiry is going to going to kind of revise its um, terms of reference to include doing something about this. So, uh, but a bit, yeah, yeah, let, let, let's hope let's hope um, something does um, happen as a result of of this story being picked up and given such prominence by a mainstream newspaper like the Telegraph. Yeah, well, you say there's no smoking gun. To me, the whole existence of the counter-disinformation unit is a massive smoking gun. And, and as to your other point, the Telegraph, why are the Telegraph the only ones picking this kind of thing up? It's so strange, you know, it's as if it's like a right-wing concern to be questioning of lockdown and, and you know, and, and question government policy. Ironically, they're the only ones questioning an allegedly conservative government, which is another irony to it. it, it it's very disturbing that you see this massive story broken on the Telegraph, and the other papers just ignore it. And um, I find that shocking. And the other story the Telegraph uh, Telegraph ran was, lockdown benefits a drop in the bucket compared to the cost, landmark study finds. So scientists from Johns Hopkins University and London University examined almost 20,000 studies on measures taken to protect populations against COVID across the world, and they found that the less strict measures Oh, sorry, the, the lockdowns in response to the first wave of the pandemic, when compared to the less strict measures adopted by the likes of Sweden, prevented as few as 1,700 deaths in England and Wales. So it's not that deaths don't matter, but it's basically saying what we've said for a long time, where was the cost-benefit analysis? You know, do we know that what lockdowns are actually worth it? And of course, they almost certainly weren't. Well, I would say they definitely weren't. But um, this article's coming out now, but just in the Telegraph, and other people don't want to look at the cost of lockdown. What do you think of this one, Tom? Yeah, I mean, this is um, something that lockdown skeptics like me have been saying, you know, almost from 
the day the lockdown was first imposed. But so it, it's great to see, you know, these um, serious scientists and researchers uh, confirming this. And this isn't the only study to confirm this, but um, it is pretty extraordinary. I mean, as Hugh Osmond, who um, is uh, is the owner of a pub group, he said on Twitter, you know, 400 billion to save 1700 lives. So this report, which uh, has been published by the Institute of Economic Affairs, but which was trailed um, by the Telegraph, the report claims that in the um, first lockdown designed to suppress the first wave in the spring of 2020, uh, they estimate that it saved a grand total of 1,700 lives uh, in England and Wales. And so Hugh Osmond is saying 400 billion to save 1,700 lives. That works out at 235 million per life saved, um, which is, um, I think, if we'd have known ahead of time um, what the likely cost of saving these lives was going to be, um, if we'd have understood that it was going to cost £235 million per life saved, that we probably wouldn't have been quite so sanguine about the policy. Um, It is absolutely extraordinary. And it's, I think, now abundantly clear, unarguable, that um, the collateral damage caused by these various non-pharmaceutical interventions far, far outweighs any benefit. But um, I don't think that it's actually a knockdown argument against locking down again, unfortunately. Um, Not because I in any way uh, want to make excuses for the lockdown zealots. Um, But I think their argument isn't that if we don't lock down... Um, in all likelihood, uh, this harm will befall the British population um, and the cost of locking down is going to be lower than this probable harm. Rather, their argument is that, okay, we we acknowledge um, that the risk of, say, half a million people dying from COVID-19 if we do absolutely nothing is actually quite negligible. That's a reasonable worst case scenario. So they, they might acknowledge that there's only a 10%, 10% probability of that risk materializing. But they say, so, so in all likelihood, the enormous cost of mitigating that risk by locking everyone down, closing businesses, shutting schools, turning the NHS into a COVID-only service, etc. The cost of that will, it will outweigh, will be far greater uh, than than the cost of doing nothing in all likelihood. But because there is this 10% risk that if we do nothing, half a million people will die, it would be irresponsible of us not to do everything in our power to mitigate the likelihood of that risk materialising. It's the same argument that's made uh, for taking these incredibly costly measures to reduce our carbon emissions. It's the same argument made to suppress misinformation, disinformation, and hate speech. It's not a straightforward cost-benefit argument. They never argue, or at least they rarely argue, not in their honest moments, not when they're being you know, as rational and as forensic about the case uh, as they can be. They don't claim that if you don't interfere with our liberty, then the likelihood is that this risk will materialize and the cost of it materializing will be far greater than any interference in our liberty. No, their argument is we must interfere because even though this risk is quite unlikely, the consequences of it materializing are so catastrophic that we need to intervene, take these measures 
destroy you, destroy livelihoods, destroy mental health, destroy the NHS, etc. That's the argument. So I'm not sure, persuasive though I find this analysis that's just been published by the IEA, I'm not sure it will persuade the hardline lockdown zealots not to lock down again. Interesting point. Um, yeah, if we follow that logic, we should be spending most of our money on m- meteor defense, shouldn't we? You know, asteroid defense, you know, because yes. that, that, there's a small chance, but it would completely wipe us out. So why are we not focusing on that the whole time? And meanwhile, we're busy building AI, which someone said the other day had a 50-50 chance of, of wiping us out. <laughs> so yeah. that's a coin toss, guys. I think that's quite a good argument. You can point out that um, it does appear quite arbitrary as to which... Um, low probability, high consequence risks we are trying to mitigate at enormous cost to ourselves. Um, uh, as you say, you know, if, if 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 you wanted to mitigate against all low probability, high consequence risks, why aren't we building a kind of meteor defense system? Why aren't we preparing for an alien invasion? Um, uh, and uh, yeah, I think that's that's an argument. You know, it's arbitrary. But but you know, for the really kind of safety obsessed types, I think well I think there are two responses. First of all, they might say, yeah, let's guard against those risks. We should be spending money on protecting ourselves against meteor strikes and alien invasions. But I think the other argument is, and this is where it gets fiendish, is they say, ah, but the risks of doing nothing Sorry, they say that 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 the the reason the reason we should um, concern ourselves with the remote but catastrophic possibility of climate change or of COVID nineteen being let rip or of allowing people to speak too freely on social media is because if those risks materialise, they adversely, disproportionately affect the least. The, the most disadvantaged, the historically marginalized. So it's a kind of marriage of wokery, woke morality, self-righteousness with kind of extreme self-safetyism. That combination, that intersect, that's a very potent cocktail. That's what we're up against. That's why that, that, it, that when people make the case for net zero, you know, they say, OK, maybe if we do nothing, maybe if we don't achieve um, net zero by 2050, the world won't end. We c- will just carry on. But there's a 2% risk that it will, uh, and we'll have passed the point of no return by then. Um, and if that 2% risk actually materializes, it will disproportionately affect uh, the global south. So as as the moral guardians of the planet's welfare and of the welfare of all the people in it, we have a moral responsibility to take these steps to mitigate a risk which is going to disproportionately affect the most disadvantaged. That combination, extreme safetyism and um, woke morality, that it's our responsibility to protect the most vulnerable, the historically disadvantaged. Uh, that That's a potent cocktail, a potent argument. And that, that that's why they'd say we don't need to guard against alien invasion or meteor strikes because they'd, ind- they'd be indiscriminate. They'd kill, they wouldn't disproportionately kill the global South residents, you know. Right. Until we get a message from the aliens saying we're, we're just, we're just going for black people, guys. Yeah. <laughs> good point. Um and that's why in polite society, you still have to be pro-lockdown. If I was to speak to all my extended blob associates in North London, they're all, they'd still be pro-lockdown. I, I've sort of taken it almost as a given in the circles I hang out in that lockdowns were awful, obviously, and a complete catastrophe. But this is not the view of the normie. As we saw in that Times poll, people still want lockdowns, especially the young want even stricter lockdowns. 
So yeah, perhaps because you say this it's interesting argument, this combination of safetyism and wokeism, we have not won the lockdown argument at all. And it doesn't seem to matter what evidence comes out, how many telegraph pieces are run, most of the media ignores it. And we're just in massive denial about it, it seems to me. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I think that at the moment, the chances of the government being able to get away with another lockdown in response to another virus or in response to the risk of climate change. Um, I think the chances, I don't, I don't, I think it would be politically very difficult for them to do that now. The worry is that in 10 or 15 years, when it's a distant memory, they'll just do it all again. Do you know what? Another little angle. Do people just say that they're pro lockdown because it's a virtue signaling thing? You know, even in that poll in the Times, were they answering honestly? Because the lockdowns bizarrely have become associated in the sort of normie world with virtue for the reasons that you've said because it indicates protecting minorities or safetyism or whatever are people actually so let's say there was another lockdown people might say they want it but how many would actually go along with it is a question and how many are just virtue signaling mm. because people didn't go along with it the first time even while claiming they were for it yeah oh i think i think it, i think there's definitely a strong element of virtue signaling and i think amongst you know um, the people you play football with, um, I think there's an it's it it's it's almost it's also a way of status signalling, not just because um, uh, supporting the lockdown is a kind of high status uh, position. So you know you want to be a member of the Brahmin class by kind of pointing out advertising the fact that you share their view. Uh, it's also members of the Brahmin class um, are able to con- are able to cope with lockdown. It's almost a cost free. Um, intervention for them because they've got great Wi-Fi, they work from home anyway, their kids are being educated at private schools, so there's excellent homeschool support for them. You know, saying that you don't mind locking down, or actually you quite enjoyed the lockdown, um, uh, is a way of advertising your superior social status, your superior socioeconomic status, unlike these poor working class people in tower blocks and no proper wi-fi and the rest of it they can cope because they're rich you know there's an element of that too but it's sort of semi-conscious and to be fair to one of the um extended blob people i know he was very concerned about the schools so some of them are just zealously pro lockdown others are more like hang on guys what about the schools and they do have some of those points so you know it's not like they're all uniformly in favor of it and i think that the schools thing particularly would be a hard one to sell to people again Although I may not be playing football too much, Toby, because I've got a horrific shin injury. I, I don't know if I've shown you, but you might have spared. You might have been spared the pictures. I've got a massive swelling and sort of horrendous bruising. That when everyone sees it, they go, "What's that?" It's like that bad. Whereas I'm sort of weirdly proud of it because it's a football injury, but it's horrendous. It looks horrific. It, only after two weeks, it's still quite bad. I did a bad tackle late in the game. There was a sound. It was like lightning cracking, and people were like, "What's that?" I was like, "That was my shin." But just the shin pads are the only reason I'm alive. It was pretty bad. It was one of those where you think, you look at it and go, should I even be playing? Because it was pretty bad. I mean, but yeah, we'll wait, we'll wait and see on that. I'm sure the listeners are keen to know more about that. <laughs> but um, do you want to do our first yeah, advert? Yeah, sure. So in 2013, Germany gave up on the 40-year wait for the Fed to audit its gold and asked for theirs back. Four years, millions of dollars, and a few battleships later, they managed to secure a fifth of their US-held gold into German self-custody. In 2020, Venezuela asked the Bank of England for their gold back, but got a straight no. And in 2021, a Chinese company was found to have sold at least 80 tonnes of fake gold. To add to gold's issues, 
asteroid mining will make gold abundant, inevitably. Gold might yet have one last hurrah, but Bitcoin fixes all of its flaws. Any amount can be sent instantly, unstoppably, and unstealably for a few dollars or less. The entire supply can be validated by a simple command, is secured by maths, and is immutably limited. Plus, Bitcoin is internet native and adoption is growing, inevitably. Skeptical? At the Stack Assistant, we offer free advice to help stack your first SATs, as the subunits of Bitcoin are called, and securing your stack into self-custody. You can email us at thestackassistant at pm.me. That's thestackassistant, all one word, at pm.me. All right, well, now let's go to Will with our top stories of the week. So I'm here with Dr. Will Jones, editor of The Daily Skeptic, as you all know, and we have some interesting stories. Firstly, the WHO and the EU announced global system of vaccine passports for, quote, future pandemics. Sounds absolutely chilling, Will. Yeah, this is a very sinister development, although it's been in the pipe in the pipework for some time. So uh, f- fully expected. This is the news uh, that the World Health Organization and the EU have yesterday announced their collaboration on a global digital vaccine passports. And they made that announcement at a joint pes- press conference in Geneva. Uh, they the the WHO has said that it wants to it wants to roll out the EU's pioneering and and they and in their view very effective vaccine passport technology uh, globally they want to make it permanent they want to expand this they want to expand it uh, to all the other unusual vaccines that you have the so-called uh, yellow card international certificate of vaccination uh, not to be confused with the uh, side adverse event uh, yellow card system in the UK this is the uh, this is the vaccination uh, international travel uh, yellow card certificate. They want to roll it out for that. They basically want a fully a fully functional global international digital system for vaccine passports. Uh, this is uh, for, for normal vaccination. Perhaps that's one thing, uh, but for experimental vaccines during a so-called pandemic, and they've uh, talked about this for being for future pandemics. We wonder when the next one of those is going to happen. I imagine uh, much quicker than we would like if the World Health Organization has anything to do with it. We saw how they, they've already declared monkeypox ludicrously as a uh, so-called public health emergency of international concern. So it won't be long before they'll be declaring uh, some, some, other, some other surprise illness that's, uh, that appears from nowhere and doesn't do very much uh, as, some, as some kind of pandemic or emergency. And then we'll have these uh, these these vaccine passports uh, kicking in very very quickly. Uh, we can be sure. The bizarre thing about this, though, I say bizarre. It's not bizarre at all, but it should but it should be bizarre. Is that the United Nations itself, the World Health Health Organization, of course, is uh, an agency of the United Nations. Uh, but at the time that vaccine passports were 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 starting to gain momentum back in the summer of 2021, the uh, the UNESCO organizations, the Commission for the Ethics of Science and Technology, and the International Bioethics Committee, all sound very important, released a joint statement at that time in June uh, June 2021 saying that any COVID-19 certificate, that's vaccine passports, should be implemented only with great caution, uh, should account for scientific uncertainty regarding the degree of protection that vaccines, past infections and COVID test results provide, 
and this should not work against sustainable development. And in light of those concerns, they made clear that a research, this is important, a research programme should be developed to assess their impact on society and public health and the risks they might bring. That's the United Nations itself, another part of it, calling for a research program into into the actual evidence on these vaccine passports that were which were gaining uh, gaining currency at that time. And uh, can you can you predict? Can you tell me how much of this research they've done? How much of this uh, these studies they've done to check whether these things actually do anything and what their what their harms and impact might be? Can you can you have make any kind of guess, Nick? Is it zero? It is exactly right. How did you know? Uh, you must be some kind of genius. Yes, that's absolutely right. They, they have done. There is no sign of this of this research program that the United Nations itself called for at the time. It's certainly, the press release that the World Health Organization put out yesterday uh, made no mention of any evidence of any kind, let alone from this research program. And I've uh, I've looked around. There is there is no. Uh, there is no evidence, no studies uh, that, that even look at the question of whether these vaccine passports have, have achieved anything and what the harms might be to society um, or public health or anything else. No studies at all, no evidence, let alone positive evidence. Uh, and of course, we know why that's likely to be the case, because we know very well that they are very likely, likely to have achieved nothing at all. Numerous studies now have shown that the vaccinated often have higher infection rates than the unvaccinated or the less vaccinated. So with with statistics like that, with hard data like that published uh, by uh, governments around the world, there is not going to be any evidence that these vaccine passports have done, have made any benefit. So why are they rolling it out globally? Why are they making it permanent? Uh, why are they, have they decided that the EU system of vaccine passports should become uh, the, the global standard? Well, uh, that's uh, that's that's for you to speculate on. I think that's for anyone to speculate on, uh, Nick. I think charitably we could say that they just assume that they work, but I think we can imagine that they've got some other reasons, some other agendas that they might uh, want to have this kind of uh, global digital control over travel, um, and you can fill in the gaps. Yeah, very very sinister. I mean, that is. I try to think about this, but this is terrifying. The only hope is that we'd, we'd show even more resistance than this time, especially in this country, we're quite resistant to that kind of thing. And I hope we would just say no, because, you know, you can't just force people to take a, a questionable or pointless medical intervention, can you? Well, so we think. Let's see. No, that's what we all assumed, wasn't it? And then we saw what happened from 2021 onwards. Yeah, absolutely sinister, absolutely obscene intrusion on uh, b- bodily autonomy, personal freedom. And um, and this is, uh, and, you know, and we have to remember that the United States only just removed their vaccine entry requirement uh, just in the last few weeks, uh, se- several years later. There's, there's been no evidence it's achieved anything of any value at all, at least not in terms of uh, s- stopping disease. It may have achieved some some of goals that the government and health agencies had of their own. Uh, very sinister, not, not a good development as well. And as you say, uh, let's hope that we can see some resistance uh, from this kind of uh, global uh, lunacy uh, in this country. Looks like I might have to go back to living in the woods if it happens. Let's do this story. North Korea wins leading role at World Health Organization. Yeah, and just to uh, add add insult to injury, uh, we have now the the news that the that North Korea that 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 tin pot uh, dictatorship, a closed society in uh, in Southeast Asia, has won itself a seat on the World Health Organization executive board. Uh, ludicrously, this uh, one of the world's most horrific regimes is now part of the group that sets 
uh, and enforces uh, the standards and norms for global governance of healthcare. Um, it will uh, give them a vote on the appointment of the WHO's six regional directors and potentially uh, even a vote on the replacement for the director general uh, should that, that opportunity arise uh, during its time on the executive board. Uh, I mean, this only reinforces, of course, the, the nature of what the United Nations and the World Health Organization is. It is an international body. It has it has all countries as part of it, all states, not just democracies, not just places which supposedly love freedom. Uh, although we're not so sure about that with our own countries at the moment, but you know, let's let's stick with the with the ideas that we have of our countries. And um, but but all kinds of uh, dictatorships and countries with with terrible human rights records and that treat their citizens appallingly and have completely different values uh, to us. This is not an organisation that we should be looking to to provide us with with e- even guidance uh, really about about health and uh, welfare, let alone, as we've seen with the uh, the looming pandemic treaty and amendments to the international health regulations, the idea that they should be setting legally oblig- obligatory uh, standards and uh, measures, countermeasures um, against uh, for pandemics and so- so-called uh, public health emergencies, which, of course, uh, it's the World Health Organization that decides when these things are uh, these things are supposedly ongoing um, and uh, and happening. So uh, so and and here we have North North Korea sitting sitting in uh, one of the key seats. So uh, yeah, just just shows, doesn't it, that this is not an organisation, the World Health Organisation, that we should uh, that we should be really giving any further power to, um, and even uh, reducing what power it has. Absolutely, all very dodgy. But I'm quite keen to get on to this next one because it's an expert has challenged electric cars and it's Rowan Atkinson. Actually, I said an expert as a joke, but actually you, you read into it and he is a bit of an expert. Yeah, yeah. Who, who knew that Rowan Atkinson, Mr. Bean uh, actor um, and uh, all-round uh, comic, uh, British comic legend, Rowan Atkinson, actually has an engineering uh, background. Uh, so actually does, and, with a, and a passion for cars as well. So actually has some expertise to to comment on this issue of of cars, electric, electric vehicles, and the potential for them to replace uh, the uh, traditional internal combustion engine and remarkably he's written uh, an article which which frankly um is scathing of electric electric cars and their potent their environmental impact and their potential to be the replacement uh, supposedly clean replacement for uh, petrol and diesel vehicles and even more remarkably he's written this in the guardian of all places is this a sign that the the guardian that herald herald bearer of of the green left is it is this a sign that uh, that it is turning against electric cars um, or is this just anomalous let's hope it's the first uh, because this is because uh, his his article really really lays into electric electric vehicles it sets out uh, the fact that while they have uh, they obviously have have cleaner emissions they don't they don't produce uh, emissions on uh, from the vehicle itself but actually they produce 70% higher greenhouse gas emissions during their manufacture than a petrol one so that you already see that this is that they that there's far more as what so-called embedded carbon let's go along with this idea that carbon dioxide is is, is some kind of pollutant uh, and they and they have far far higher and this is because uh, the batteries i mean we've talked about this several times we know the reasons uh, that the electric uh, batteries they're very heavy they use rare earth metals they require huge amounts of energy uh, to manufacture and and the weight um, is a massive problem as well he points out that the weight um, of these batteries uh, is, is already a problem for cars, but for for lorries um, and um, heavy goods vehicles, I mean, it's 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 prohibitive of of these being developed to any kind of uh, the, the necessary standards that they need to be. The 
uh, the power and the uh, and the durability that that they need. And of course, uh, these batteries they only last about well. I mean, let's let's be generous. Uh, 20, 20 years. They don't really last twenty years, do they? Uh, and then they all need replacing every, every time. And you can't reuse uh, under current technology. You can't reuse these rare earth metals. They 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 can't be they can't be properly recycled um, in that way. It's not like you can you can regenerate them. It all has to it all has to be done again. You have to keep finding more and more of these uh, rare earth metals um, all all the time. So totally totally crazy technology. Not not really viable. It's only been backed because there's no other real viable alternative. And the government's of the world are obsessed with with banning the perfectly usable and serviceable uh, a petrol car internal combustion engine. So yeah, good to good to see the uh, Rowan Atkinson uh, and uh, and in particular the Guardian st- sticking the knife in really to the to the electric vehicle industry um, and uh, and essentially um, he he put some positives about other other technologies. Talks about hydrogen being a um, being a good technology. Uh, I'm not. I'm less convinced that hydrogen's really gonna, uh, really gonna cut it. Myself, for all kinds of reasons, which we don't have time to go into uh, right now. We've discussed uh, previously, but they, he does suggest some some alternatives. Uh, but but still, as we know, the the obsession at the moment is with electric vehicles, um, and it's and it is good to see uh, the Guardian um, and Rowan Atkinson sticking the knife into that industry um, and suggesting that that really isn't uh, the way the way forward. Yeah, good pants. I don't even drive, but I might. I mean, I can legally drive, so I might just buy a couple of petrol cars, drive them around a bit and do my bit for the environment <laughs> since they're so much better. Um, so this one from Chris, Antarctica sensation, a bit of a tabloid spin there. Uh, ice shelves surrounding the continent grew in overall size from 2009 to t- 2019. That's right. Yeah, tab- tabloid spin on the Daily Skeptic. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> we, 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 are, we, we, are, we, we draw inspiration from the, from the tabloids and the, uh, the catchy headings. No, no, no shame in that, Nick. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Antarctica sensation. Uh, ice shells surrounding the continent grew in overall size uh, in the decade from 2009 to 2019. Remarkable uh, story, this. Sensational, in fact. And this is three climate scientists from the University of Leeds uh, have published uh, research in in the influential European Geosciences Union. So this is you know this is this is not this is not fringe stuff. Uh, not that we mind fringe stuff, but it's good to see this being done uh, in the um, in this in this heart of climate of climate science. And they have said that uh, the overall total ice shelf in the Antarctic Antarctica has grown in that period by 0.4 percent. Uh, which is uh, which is a, you know not a small amount in a, in ten in ten years, uh, but of course the remarkable thing is that it's grown at all, or at least remarkable from the point of view of the climate alarmists and the orthodox global warming narrative. The idea that Antarctica is getting more ice just does not fit with the mainstream narrative on climate doom at all. There has been some parts of Antarctica where there has been some loss of ice, particularly in the east. Chris uh, Chris Morrison, our environment editor, points out that this may well be linked to the large number of vol- large amount of volcanic activity um, in the region. But over the vast majority of the continent, uh, the ice shelves have been have been growing and growing significantly um, in just just in the past few years. Uh, there's no overall real trend um, of the ice uh, of the ice growth in the Antarctica. He's ha- uh, Chris produces a very good graph uh, showing a modest increase um, in ice increase that is, um, but uh, but no no obvious um, major major trend, uh, which is you know all 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 to the good really and and crucially totally different to the doom and gloom that we hear. But 
the mainstream, of course, relies on cherry picking what it shows. It, it shows the loss of ice in just one part of Anta- Antarctica, the uh, the west of Antarctica. Uh, I think I might have said the wrong earlier. I might have said east. It's the west of Antarctica that's losing uh, some of its ice. And uh, and also the Arctic, uh, which there's a different story in the Arctic, although that's been slowing recently. Uh, but the point is that the climate is not this universal entity, which is currently experiencing some kind of global universal breakdown, that we're seeing some kind of global trend, uh, while we, there is some loss of ice in the in the Arctic, as this research shows. In the Antarctic, uh, this picture is completely different, uh, but you will not uh, be hearing this on the BBC uh, or in the mainstream anytime soon, I don't think, unfortunately. All right. Well, those ones, as always, I struggle with a bit with some of the detail, but many of our listeners will grasp it. So um, some good stories overall. I mean, what, I mean, yeah, okay. So what's your overall view, Will, on the, on the, on the climate? Is it, um, when's it going to kill us all? Is it 2030 or 2050 or what? Oh, well, I mean, next year, I think, um, from what, um, isn't that what King Charles said um, <laughs> some time ago? Wasn't, wasn't that right? Aren't we, aren't we, haven't we reached some kind of tipping point? In fact, I think we reached some tipping point about 10 years ago. I, I, I lose track, to be honest, Nick. Yeah, well, at one point it was an ice age. So let's see what they come up with next. That's my view, uninformed yet highly sceptical. <laughs> but uh, thanks, Will. Excellent stories. And uh, we'll see you again, I'm sure, next week. Great. Thanks, Nick. It just struck me. I, yeah, I'm a bit, I know I keep talking about it. I'm a bit run down today and I woke up with a weird throat. I'm feeling a bit run down. And my mate's ill. And my mate got COVID. My brother's wife got it. Leo got ill. Don't know if it was COVID. You get that worry, don't you, if you're on our side that like, I mean, I only got ill once between 2019 and now, which was in 2022, when I was also overdoing it with my workouts like I am at the moment. And I got really ill. And there's always that worry as a pure blood. There's like, ah, see, it's real. It killed you. You know, it's that double worry. You get ill, but also you get attacked because you've been such a skeptic of the vaccines and everything. So like, it's very important that I don't, don't die of COVID. And on that note, by the way, I don't want to speculate, but have you seen this J- Jamie Foxx story? No. Oh, well, there's rumors that Jamie Foxx has been left paralyzed and blind by getting the va- vaccine and getting a blood clot in his brain, but it's unconfirmed. Although you'd think, why has he not come out and, 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 and disproved it, it, it either? So it's a, bit, it's a bit disturbing. And who knows if it's, uh, who knows what's going on? But um, it's an unsubstantiated rumor at this time. But, you know, I don't know, you hear this different stuff about him. He seems to have, he's definitely been ill for a while. I know if, if something like that happened, if someone did have a really a famous person had a really significant health problem from the vaccine, do you think that would, uh, and it could be definitely proved it was that, do you think that would change anything? I think the, I think, you know, the, the pro-vaxxers would still say that um, such side effects are still extremely rare and they would claim that um, the complications from uh, getting COVID even though taking the vax doesn't necessarily stop you getting COVID, um, are more dangerous than um, the potential adverse effects of the vaccines. I mean, you know, that, that, that's what they always say in response to reports of adverse events. Um, they just point out how, how rare they are. Uh, but yeah, I think if, 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 if a major celebrity um, you know, um, uh, died uh, in a way that could be conclusively shown to be linked to their COVID vaccination. I think that would that would have an impact. But, you know, I don't think we need, I mean, um, I don't know if you see, we ran a story in the um, Daily Skeptic last week. So I've been on duty at the Daily Skeptic because Will's been away for about 
seven or eight days and I've been doing it for the past seven or eight days. It's been absolutely exhausting doing that along with running the free speech union and all my other jobs. Um, so, uh, but anyway, Will's back now, but, uh, I ran a story last week. Um, uh, it was a, we often republish stuff uh, produced by this um, substacker called Eugippius. And he's a former, now former German academic, but uh, a COVID, a, a lockdown skeptic and a bit of a vaccine skeptic too. And, um, and he, he pointed out that in Germany, Germany massively um, uh, overspent on um, vaccine doses, on COVID vaccine doses. And they've now got huge stockpiles of doses, which they literally can't give away. They can't even export them now to the developing world. No one wants them. Um, And this is a story repeated in other countries across the world. Vast stockpiles of vaccine doses are now just going bad at enormous expense to the taxpayers in these countries. Um, So I don't think, I think, I think, you know, um, uh, the, 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 the argument has been won, more or less, by the vaccine sceptics. Almost no one wants to take any of the boosters now. Um, so um, I don't think we need, you know, Tom Cruise to drop dead after he's received his fifth booster in order to persuade people that it might not be sensible. I think people are persuaded. No one's taking this crap anymore. <laughs> yeah. And much like my point about lockdown, even if people aren't taking it, they still would they still advocate for it, even if they secretly wouldn't take it. That's the ridiculous part of it. But yeah, Lisa Shaw died and it was proved to be from the vaccine and that didn't seem to do anything. So you're right, it seems to be unfalsifiable for them. All right, well, let's go across the pond and do this Biden story. So Joe Biden fell while he was at a graduation ceremony for the US Air Force Academy, he fell over a sandbag. So he said, I got sandbagged. So of course, it was another Biden fall. And it was quite a disturbing one. And Trump was doing jokes about it, saying, yeah, you've got to tiptoe down that ramp and so on. And because he had that thing where he was walking very slowly down a ramp. He was pretty funny and self-deprecating and nice about it, um, Trump, because he's a great guy. But uh, it was another moment for Biden. Nothing new, but just another one of those moments where you go like, this is ridiculous. He can't possibly run. He's 80 years old. And we'll get on to the RFK campaign in a, in a minute. But there are people there who could do it if the Democrat... National Committee lets them, you know, the DNC has to let them in and they probably won't. But but what do you think, Toby? What do you make of this latest for? Yeah, it was, um, I, I, you know, I, I don't, I'm not such a Biden hater that I, you know, that all human sympathy is extinguished when I see something like that happen to him. I just, I couldn't help but feel sorry for him. It's so humiliating. Um, and he's so clearly unfit, um, uh, not just to run again, you know, uh, (laughs) next year, but he's unfit to be president of the United States at the moment. And it's just sad and pathetic. Uh, But I can't help feel a kind of welling up of sympathy uh, when I see him kind of take a tumble. Um, uh, And I I, I sort of thought, you know, I also thought there, but for the grace of God, I mean, admittedly, I'm not, I don't, I don't frequently fall over in public. Um, But you know, he did that thing when he kind of got up again, he kind of looked behind him as if to blame (laughs) something, you know, to, to blame the sandbag. And afterwards, you know, he more or less did blame the sandbag. But whenever I trip, I now find myself doing that thing, you know, instead of just recovering and walking on, I kind of look behind me in a sort of tutty way, trying to blame, you know, something in on the pavement or on the ground for having tripped me up because I'm now, you know, virtually a, a decrepit old geezer myself and can't admit that I'm just getting old, 
has to be the fault of the something I tripped over, you know. It's a, but that awful, that awful kind of reflex now, which is a symptom of you know decline, of of blaming external objects whenever you kind of have a fall or you trip up. It's awful. I, I just can't help myself. <laughs> to be fair. To you, Toby, I think that's quite universal. The sort of looking at the floor there must have been a paving stone that was that was not <laughs> properly maintained. I think that's fairly standard amongst all ages, just to sort of mitigate embarrassment somewhat, or even to genuinely check. But yeah, but when it's Biden, I mean, he's done it so often, you'd think he just wouldn't bother checking at this point what it was. Do you think he would be not only because not only is he unfit to be president? And I, I again, like you, I, I when I see him fall, I don't enjoy it. The fall was like, ooh, it was a. You think one, it's humiliating as you say, but also it's like. Is he going to hurt himself? It's not. And I do hate Biden and hate the Biden administration, but I look at it and I still go, oh, that's not nice. So the question is, of course, he's unfit to be president, but would he even be deemed fit for work if he was in the UK and trying to get benefits? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, is he fit to yeah, do any so, job? Yeah. yeah so, so you can imagine, I mean, it's quite a good sketch. You could imagine someone, you know, um, maybe Biden should do this himself on Saturday Night Live. He goes to he goes to his work coach, you know, at the local social security office, and uh, you know he hobbles in, falls over on his way to the interview. Um, when he arrives, he's not quite sure where he is. Takes him a while to focus. Reaches out and starts kind of trying to toy with the hair of his rather attractive female work coach, and and then she says, "Well, what what jobs do you think you're fit to do, uh, Mr. Biden?" Which is, "Well, I could be president of the United States." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That's, that is the, that is, that's where we're at, though, isn't it? That is shocking. Oh well. What? So I don't know what's going to happen. I feel I feel about eighty today, just because I'm I'm so run down. But um, <laughs> I feel like I couldn't run the United States today. But most days I feel like I could. All right. Well, now let's do our occasional section. It's bird watch. So, and this is very relevant to Biden because RFK announced that he was running. Robert Kennedy Jr. He's the son of Bobby Kennedy, in case you didn't know, nephew of JFK, which almost doesn't seem possible. You think that's so long ago, but he he is 69. He just looks very young. And they did this space about reclaiming democracy with Elon Musk. And it was very, very interesting. And I find RFK to be very sound. Apparently, he's not sound on the climate stuff is the only thing that a few people have said to me. But he's actually pro-Second Amendment. He said, I won't take anyone's guns, although I'm very concerned about school shootings. And I would do everything I can to stop those because why do we have this much higher rate than other countries, even countries with similar gun levels? Switzerland has loads of guns and doesn't have these. He said there's a shooting every 24, every 21 hours, apparently. And he wants to look at the medications. He says this is a variable that school kids are on these medications, these you know antidepressants or whatever, in massive numbers that, that nowhere else is doing. So that's a very kind of interesting sort of position that a lot of people would say on the internet, but it's not said in the mainstream. Of course, he's not big on vaccination, which is well known. He's worried about fiat currency and the dollar losing its place and the catastrophic depression there would be if the dollar does lose its status as the reserve currency or whatever whatever it's called. You know, if, if all these countries stop using the dollar, he mentioned that. He's quite balanced on the war and he gives sort of the overall perspective on it and why Russia might have felt, you know, not, even though the aggression, he's not obviously pro-Russian aggression, I'm sure, but he's like, Here's how it might have come about. So he seemed very balanced on a lot of issues and very open to a dialogue with the other side. And he's a real, and the fact he's got the Kennedy name is big. And I think it does expose the establishment and the DNC and the media. You look on his Wikipedia and it immediately just calls him a vaccine conspiracy theorist. He's very much smeared by everyone. 
And you expect them to smear Trump. That's kind of standard here. Yeah, Trump's evil and stupid. Right, fine. But when they smear RFK Jr., you kind of see how evil the establishment are because this is a Kennedy who's a Democrat who just has lots of reasonable views, but they have to smear him as well. What do you think, Toby? Yeah, I think he's uh, an interesting candidate. And um, I think... Uh, he, I think he's, you know, he's he's broadly right about a lot of things, but I think wrong on a lot of things as well. Um, but interestingly, the the combination of things he's right about and wrong about is very different to every other candidate in the race, even Trump. Uh, so he's very cynical about the mainstream media. Um, he is, as you say, an extreme vaccine skeptic, but he's not just skeptical about the COVID vaccines. Um, he's skeptical about vaccines, period. Um, so obviously, I part company with him there. Um, but he was—he was—he's been very good on—he's um, very good on uh, the attempt by the censorship industrial complex to suppress dissent across a range of issues, and he's on the wrong side of all the issues that the censorship industrial complex is kind of most worked up about. So vaccines, the war in Ukraine. Uh, the lockdowns. Um, uh, and, you know, it, it, it's nice to see someone in the race uh, who is forcing the mainstream media to take his views seriously, who, who, who would typically be demonized as a kind of uh, crazy far right conspiracy theorist. I mean, it's quite hard to paint him as far right when he's running as, you know, a Democrat and he is the son of Bobby Kennedy. Um, so, yeah, I think on the whole, on balance, he's he's a good thing. I'm glad he's in the race. And um, and he seems to be polling extremely well, I mean, unexpectedly well. And that could be a harbinger of a kind of populist revolt, you know, amongst Democrats. Um, and, you know, he may, do, he may do very well, and it would be gloriously entertaining if he does better, for instance, than, I mean, let's suppose, you know, um, Biden is persuaded. Um, that, uh, you know, he's just too old and infirm to run again. Or let's suppose he has a stroke or a heart attack or, you know, falls over and really hurts himself uh, and withdraws. And and then there is actually, um, you know, a proper race and Gavin Newsom throws his hat into the ring and Kamala Harris throws her hat into the ring, Peter Buttigieg. Um, and it'd be gloriously entertaining if RFK starts out polling them and actually starts heading towards, you know, the Democratic convention next year as the favourite. That would be fantastic. Uh, but I don't think that's going to happen. I did see his polling at, at, at sort of half of Biden's or something, that it was the second, you know, it was, it was polling the second best amongst Democrat candidates in one poll I saw. I think he has to be the candidate. I think people haven't quite realised that yet. But, but remember when Obama came out, people didn't think he was going to be the candidate. Then it just sort of became inevitable because of his speeches and his charisma and stuff. I think RFK is inevitable, but I could be wrong. He has a sort of Tulsi-esque, you know, Tulsi-Gabbard-esque uh, stance in that he's in the Democrats, but he's not really, she's no longer in them, but she was in them while not seeming to really align with them on many things. But he has an extra gravitas because he's a Kennedy and he just and just because of something about him, he seems to be more serious. He does have the problem of his voice, which is spasmodic dysphonia, which he only developed at 43. A bit scary to think about, but he had a strong voice before, but now he has this strange voice, which sounds like he's choking or whatever. He's about to die. And it, at first, he, it is off-putting. And some people think this will be a problem for him. I think it will be not ideal for him, but you can get used to it. And um, it's, it's interesting also that Instagram 
lifted the ban on him. He was banned on Instagram and they were forced mm. to lift it because of a rule when you're, actually, when you're running for president, as I understand it. So he is sort of anti-establishment. Instagram's against him. Wikipedia's against him. But if he does get somewhere, I mean, it is a harbinger of, of change. I mean, I think we're at the point where the Biden administration and the kind of woke administration, the woke swamp are sort of so obsolete. They're just they're just sort of zombies at the moment. And something has to change. And I think the change could be RFK versus Trump. I mean, I would be happy personally with RFK, Trump or DeSantis. And I said in a tweet that the establishment is scared of all three. And some people said, well, they're not scared of DeSantis because he's actually funded by blah, blah, blah. And there is that. Is DeSantis just a neocon stooge? Maybe. But I think certainly Trump and RFK, they don't want. But those two, again, some, some people even said RFK should like be Trump's running mate. RFK should be the VP. Trump versus RFK. These are all good possibilities. But they're all just, they, they should all be possibilities. But but we're blocked from having, we in the West generally and, and in America are blocked from having the candidates they want by this weird swamp. And they blocked Bernie. But Bernie was an actual mad communist. So this maybe should be blocked in America. <laughs> but but they if they block RJK, it's, it's, there's something really, RFK Jr. There is something really wrong, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean it, it, I don't see how they can block him. I mean, I think... Uh, it's it the fact that Instagram have um, you know um, lifted their ban is, is fantastic, and I think it'll make I think it'll be it'll be hard for Twitter or Facebook to ban him or to flag his posts as misinformation or mostly false or whatever it is they do and say or a breach of their community standards. You know, given that he is a candidate in a presidential race, I mean. Look how much look how much pushback there was against um, Twitter suppressing the Hunter Biden laptop story in the New York Post. Uh, I think I think you know he, he he's a he's a it, it, it the fact that he's in the race uh, makes it much more difficult not just to stop him from airing his particular reservations about the war in Ukraine or about COVID vaccines or about the corruption of the mainstream media. It'll make it harder to suppress other people um, airing those same concerns. So, you know, it's uh, hopefully it'll mean we have a much more open conversation, a proper national debate about a kind of broad range of issues during the presidential election or in the run up to the presidential election anyway next year. But maybe you're right. Maybe they'll figure out a way to kill him off. I hope not. Let's see. The, the only question I have is, is, is his wife, Cheryl Hines, obviously very good in Kirby enthusiasm, but she threw him under the bus in a, in a tweet a while ago for something he said in a way that I think you should never do to your husband. You don't throw your husband under the bus publicly about a political matter. That was shocking. I noticed she came on the stream. She kind of seemed like she wasn't, didn't know she was going to be asked on the Twitter space with Musk. And, um, and someone asked her, how do you feel about all this? And she's like, <laughs> yeah, it's exciting. And she was so careful because she's an actor in and, and people say how do your hollywood friends feel about it and she's like well i'm sure they'll be shocked to refer to as hollywood friends ha 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 and she kept trying to get out of it but what was so clear was like she was being very careful because a lot of his views obviously are wildly out of alignment with woke hollywood so she's in this weird position where she's like hey uh, don't ask me i thought that's a bit of a problem when your wife has to be that careful you know what i mean they're in yeah. the woke hollywood and they can't say anything yeah no that must be that must be quite difficult. Yeah, she's not going to be like an asset during the campaign in the same in the way that you know Ron DeSantis' wife is. Um, yeah, that must be tricky. I imagine Larry David will excommunicate her if uh, if she's too enthusiastic about her husband's candidacy. 
Well, she's heading. Well, maybe Larry will get on board with that with RFK, but I think they're heading for divorce if he runs. But anyway, that's just my little prediction. Do you want to do the other aspect of this, which was uh, Elon Musk? Well, firstly, in the space with RFK, he said that um, Twitter had, Twitter's ad revenue had halved overnight, and he blamed U.S. advertisers trying to drive the firm bankrupt over its free speech stance. And and this seems to be the case. I, I just joined the space just as he was talking about this, and I missed it. But he basically seemed to be saying that because of ESG nonsense and DEI nonsense, he won't go along with this. So he's just accepted getting absolutely decimated. And he's now bringing in the CEO, this Linda Yaccarino person, earlier than expected to try and solve all this. And you wonder, like, how can they how can they do this when Musk is so clear in his stance? But what I don't, I don't understand, Toby, is... How do these ESG people, how do they have all this money? How are they able to just corral all these advertisers? And advertisers now, we know, sort of hate their customers, as in the case of Bud Light. They don't seem to care about generating revenue. But somehow they have all this money that comes in just for following woke doctrine, ESG, DEI. But where does all the money come from? And how, how do they have such a grip on so many companies? Yeah, I think it's, it, well, it's a, I think it's a, it's a complicated story. Um, but my understanding is that the reason big companies that might otherwise advertise on Twitter, like Visa, for instance, or Hertz, uh, uh, the reason the reason they um, uh, have pledged to um, do what they can under their environmental, social, and governance agendas um, is partly because of shareholder revolts. So shareholder activists who own shares in the company have effectively forced this agenda on the company at shareholder meetings. Um, uh, And that is partly the fault. Remember reading a piece about this in maybe the American Conservative, or possibly the Tablet, or possibly Compact, um, uh, or maybe even the Federalist, can't remember, but it was someone, it was very (laughs) persuasive. And it was all about how the Reagan revolution, which empowered shareholders, um, actually paved the way for these shareholder activists to um, impose a progressive agenda on the companies they had shares in. But in addition, the, the, the kind of big investment funds like BlackRock, um, which own large shares, large blocks of shares in these companies, um, uh, uh, they, 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 they will insist that the companies have to uh, show what they're doing ESG-wise as a condition of giving them money. So it's a kind of combination of shareholder activists, big investment funds, forcing them to kind of uh, at least pay lip service to this woke agenda. And that means, you know, refusing to advertise on Twitter uh, until Trump, until Musk, you know, agrees to reimpose the same safety standards that were on the platform before, I suppose, and, you know, um, kick off people like Andrew Tate. Yeah. And he said, um, Musk said, I would like to, for sure, thank those companies that have stuck with us, like Apple and Disney. It's interesting that they're quite woke, but they've stuck with them and many others. But he says, but we have for North America and Europe seen roughly half of our advertising disappear overnight simply because we insist on free speech. The public does not realize the magnitude of the pressure, extreme financial pressure that is placed upon organizations to toe the line by advertisers. And he says, I think it's a fundamental corruption of of democracy and the public should be absolutely outraged by this. But he also says, I don't care how much it costs or what it takes. If we lose free speech, we lose democracy. So it's incredibly sick that these ESG things are, are just de- destroying America by pressuring people into you know, following their political beliefs, which are mad. Um, yeah, and it's good that he's fighting back um, and trying to shame these big companies into 
you know, uh, supporting free speech and acting, you know, a bit more impartially. Uh, and maybe he's trying to, if he named and shamed the companies that were advertising on Twitter, you know, Twitter 1.0, but have stopped advertising since he bought it, maybe he could trigger, you know, boycotts, which have been very effective against Target, against um, North Face, against Bud Light. Uh, so maybe that's, you know, maybe that's stage two of this fight back. Yeah, some of those names were revealed a while ago when one of these advertiser boycotts took place and people were getting hold of the names. But yeah, he I don't think he actually spilt the names. And there must have been some reason, probably legal reason, why he didn't do that. But um, He's probably hoping they'll come back. Yes, there is that. Maybe he thinks this new CEO will bring them back. But I just can't see how she can do it without sacrificing Twitter's free speech agenda. I just don't see how it can be done. I mean, you can't. The companies are woke. They're against free speech. Musk is pro-free speech. How are you going to... Bring, coax them back. I don't. I don't quite see it. But maybe if you convince them that the tide's going to turn on them, that could be one way. You know, fear. But um, not sure. Um, on the, on a similar note, still in Birdwatch, Musk or Twitter anyway restricted uh, what is a woman. So the Daily Wire said they were going to release what is a woman. Their very popular, brilliant documentary for free on Twitter for twenty four hours. And it ended up getting millions and millions of views, huge number. I don't know how many it got in the end. It was like 50 million when I last looked at it. 75, but, um, 75 when I last looked. Wow. So, but the strange thing was Twitter were restricting it and it was coming up with messages saying it was hateful content and all this kind of stuff. And because of two instances of misgendering. So Jeremy Boring, founder of the Daily Wire, wrote a long thread about this saying Twitter let us know that not only could we no longer purchase the package they offered, they would no longer provide us any support and would actually limit the reach of the film and label it as hateful conduct because of misgendering. And what was so strange was Musk was replying to the, these threads and complaints from the Daily Wire in a kind of, sort of vague way that didn't particularly re- resolve the issue. And you're like, why is Musk being so vague and weird about this? Surely he's in favor of this. And one reason might be that he was actually just in China on, an, on, a, on a sort of un- unexpected trip. So it could just be that. Because then he later finally tweeted, every parent should watch this and personally endorsed it from his Twitter account. Mm. But for a while, it was looking really weird. Like, basically, it looked like Twitter staff were out of control and doing things that Musk didn't want. Or was it a legacy from old Twitter? Was it a glitch? What do you think was going on, Toby? I think it was probably uh, a legacy from old Twitter. Um, uh, I I don't think it was a kind of... um, a way to attract advertisers or fear of antagonizing the advertisers he's hoping to attract with his new CEO. And he hoped it would go under the radar. And when it didn't, he did a reverse ferret. I imagine it's more likely to be, you know, just cock up with some, you know, holdouts from the old regime still thinking that it's a breach of Twitter's terms of service if somebody misgenders someone. I mean, that was a reason for kicking people off Twitter and for a long time, um, Musk said in response to people saying Twitter's become, you know, a kind of sea of hate since Musk took over, his response was, well, we haven't changed the terms and conditions. Um, uh, so, you know, you're imagining it. Um, we haven't stopped enforcing our terms and conditions. And one of those terms and conditions was that if you misgendered someone, you were kicked off the platform, which is why a lot of gender critical feminists were kicked off the platform. Um, but it, I think they think he now has changed that. Um, yeah, he and, made an amendment uh, to that, I remember. Yeah, he made an amendment to that. Um, so maybe it was, you know, a, a, a legacy hire imagining that that standard still applied. I don't know. Anyway, it's good that he's now changed his mind and is promoting it or did promote it. All right. Well, that was Birdwatch. So now let's move on to everyone's favourite section. It's Peak Woke. 
So I've got so many peak wokes, Toby. I almost don't know where to start. And uh, I don't know if I can get through them all today. But maybe I'll start with the RAF. So the RAF were told to stop choosing useless white male pilots. This was in an email dated January 19th, 2021. Squadron leader Andrew Harwin. And he was talking about this diversity madness, of course. And we've heard about this before. This is just the latest in this pathetic RAF story. And he said, uh, if we don't have enough BAME and female to board, then we need to make the decision to pause boarding and seek more BAME and female from the RAF. I don't really need to see loads of useless white male pilots. Let's get as focused as possible. I'm more than happy to reduce boarding if needed to have a balanced BAME female male board. So they just paused it because they had too many useless white men. It's shocking racism, it used to be called. And, um, and then this has led to actually an update in this where they had to compensate these these candidates, and I believe it was they got five thousand pounds each, not much last I checked, because their paid employment was delayed because they were white males. Did you follow this one, Toby? Yeah, not very closely, but it does reflect the fact that um, I think every branch now of the British Armed Forces, including the RAF, has been completely captured by um, the woke cult, um, and uh, this is just yet more evidence of that. When he when he described these. Um, white male pilots as useless he wasn't do you think he was just they were just useless in virtue of being white men uh, they weren't yeah. useless examples of white men who were just hopeless pilots no that's very much my reading of it their, their, their piloting skills didn't seem to even come into it mm. they were useless and that they didn't they weren't useful for the scheme yeah it does seem a little short-sighted to you know, um, make all these diversity hires and enforce these quotas um, in a branch of the armed forces. I mean, one can't imagine <laughs> that North Korea dangerous. and China and the Russian Federation, are, you know, are, are not selecting the most able people, but are imposing all these quotas to make sure that they have a nice diverse intake of fighter pilots. I mean, it just does seem, you know, if we are beaten in the next war, uh, I'm sure that this will be one of the reasons. Yeah, it's dangerous and it's racist and it's impossible to achieve. I mean, it's, we're in a predominantly white country still just about and it, it can't it can't be done. So it's absolute madness and sickening and people are waking up to that. Similar story while I'm on this. Anglo similar-ish anyway. Anglo-Saxons aren't real, Cambridge tells students in effort to fight nationalism. That came from the Telegraph. So Cambridge University has been uh, claiming that Anglo-Saxons didn't exist because they want to make their teaching more anti-racist. And they're doing this, of course, by erasing English identity, which is what, what people do now. And it did remind me of when Morrissey sang, as I, the, the, the song I came on to on Weekly Skeptic Live. He says, I've been dreaming of a time when the English... When, it, to be English, sorry, is not to be baneful, to be standing by the flag, not feeling shameful, racist or partial. And that's really what we want. We just want to be English and that to be fine. But for some reason, it's racist just to be English and be Anglo-Saxon. So this reminded me of a bit in Douglas Murray's book, The Strange Death of Europe, where Bonnie Greer apparently was saying, well, the great thing about, you know, the British is you, you don't really have a culture. It's sort of flexible. And stuff. It's like, hang on, what? So you get these people coming over from other countries and telling us we don't have a culture, which is just unthinkable. I mean, France, imagine it happening in France. You'd, they'd smack you around the head with a bag of onions immediately. You, you couldn't have it in another country. But, but this, so this is just more of this. It's just more weird kind of erasure of Englishness. And I, I don't know what their exact argument was, but it was obvious bollocks anyway, so I don't really care. Oh, yeah, a lot of it seemed to be that this... 
The term Anglo-Saxon has recently become embroiled in controversy with some academics claiming that the term Anglo-Saxon has been used by racists, particularly in the US, to support the idea of an ancient white English identity and should therefore be dropped. So a couple of things. It's the usual importing of problems from the US that aren't our fault. And the other thing is, just because some people do that doesn't mean we have to drop English identity. I mean, Jimmy Savile, as I said on the telly, did charity work and marathons. We don't have to drop those. So just because some people adopt it to be racist, what? We just can't have England anymore. What do you think? Yeah, no, it's um, it's ridiculous and makes, I think, the Cambridge Anglo-Saxon department look completely ridiculous. Um, and, 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 you know, they weren't sort of making a scholarly argument or didn't appear to be. They weren't saying, um, you know, for these historical reasons, because of this incontrovertible evidence, we now believe Anglo-Saxons, as traditionally understood, never really existed. Um, uh, their argument is we're going to pretend that they never existed because um, the veneration of our Anglo-Saxon heritage has fueled white nationalist movements. Um, so we're now going to, I mean, it's hardly a scholarly position to take. And it's as though, I remember Jonathan Haidt wrote this good essay in which he said that universities were having to choose between their commitment to truth and science and knowledge production and uh, and you know their mission which was to um, remedy social injustices um, and it seems as though the Cambridge Anglo-Saxon department has made its choice but um, yeah I'm not sure I'd choose Cambridge now if I wanted to study Anglo-Saxon. No indeed another institution ruined. Um, Toby what are your Pete Wokes? Well I wanted to do um, a cluster of three which are all sort of related because they're uh, sort of tv and film so the first one was um so i think the bbc is adapting um a revisionist book about Colditz castle um which as you know was a german prisoner of war camp where officers were interned and where many people escaped from um and um there was a great series when i was a lad um uh, on the bbc called escape from colditz and i remember we used to pretend that you know our school was colditz and we had to escape from it this was when i was at primary school uh, you know we, we played escape from colditz every day and you know stayed up late to watch it and it was fantastic kind of mythologizing of these kind of heroic second world war officers full of courage and daring do escaping from this kind of you know secure internment camp in the heart of germany and crossing back to britain incredible stories uh but apparently this is now being taken away from us this great boy's own adventure story from the second world war and in ben mcintyre's revisionist history turns out that uh, there was an indian officer interned in Colditz and all the white British officers were incredibly racist towards him. So it turns out that these men you thought were larger than life heroes who triumphed in very adverse circumstances were all despicable racists and would have been better off dying on the battlefield rather than being imprisoned in Colditz and then escaping. So that was depressing, uh, but not surprising. Uh, another another story, which is, um, I don't know if you've seen, but little The Little Mermaid, the live action version of The Little Mermaid, which has cast a black actress as The Little Mermaid, has received some bad reviews on, I think in particular, IMDb. So its rating on IMDb isn't what it should be according to the 
film's producers. And of course, this has been blamed on racism, not because it's a terrible film. It's unbelievable. Woke Drek, another example of Hollywood getting woke and going broke. No, the only possible explanation for why people don't like this movie is because they're racists. Uh, We had a similar explanation for the bad reviews that the all female version of Ghostbusters got because the reviewers were misogynists. And we constantly hear this. Um, I don't believe it for a second. I'm not about to go and see The Little Mermaid. I'm sure it's absolute dreck. Uh, And then my final story was, I don't know if you saw this one, Nick, Michael Sheen, the slightly hysterical ultra left-wing firebrand actor and professional Welshman uh, gave an interview to The Telegraph today, I think it was published, uh, in which he said he found it very hard to accept actors playing Welsh characters when they aren't Welsh. Um, And uh, uh, it's a bit rich coming from him, given that, you know, his fame and fortune is built largely on playing American characters. Um, But the fact that he isn't American hasn't in any way inhibited him from doing American accents. Though, interestingly, Tarantino, who's making what is billed as his last movie, and it's called something like The Movie Critic, and it's this kind of unbelievably caustic, acidic portrait, I think, of a movie critic, because he hates movie critics, because, you know, he's a filmmaker and doesn't like being criticised. He says he's not going to cast an English actor uh, as the movie critic in the film, um, however good their American accent is, because he doesn't think English actors should be able to play Americans. So, you know, maybe Michael Sheen will be hoist on his own petard if any actor actually engaging in the act of acting is an unacceptable piece of cultural appropriation. Completely mental, obviously. And Escape from Cold, it's a bit before my time, but apparently there's a board game, Toby, so you might have to get the board game and relive I think it. I, um, I think I have the board game, so yeah, okay. I don't need to get that. Yeah, I have it somewhere. Um, I've got to add a couple quickly. It's getting to be another epic episode, and I'm running out of energy, but I've got to do this quickly because we had a couple of things. This Oxfam advert... But before that, we had the British Library posting their trans fish. And they said, this Pride Month, let us tell you about the Maori wrasse, uh, also known as the humphead wrasse. But its wondrous forehead isn't the most magnificent thing about this fish. They are protogynous hermaphrodites, which means the females can later change sex to become males. And basically, they were saying, look at our trans fish. Therefore, you should be able to go into women's spaces because there's a fish that's not even trans anyway. It, it actually does literally change sex in a way that humans can't and only, it's only one at a time. It's not really trans, but they yeah. were trying to claim it's a trans fish, essentially. Yeah, I'm sure that, you know, um, Kathleen Stock and Helen Joyce and Maya Forstater and J.K. Rowling probably wouldn't object if you wanted to have, you know, a bowl in a women's refuge um, with these fish in it. But uh, yeah, it's slightly, it's a pretty odd argument, isn't it? That because fish can change sex, therefore um, biological men should be able to compete against women in women's sports, enter women's safe spaces, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, not particularly logical. Um, Yeah. yeah. Uh, The other big one was, and, and this is just a general, the way pride is not working out too well this year. Oxfam, and there's a few examples of this, but Oxfam, had this Protect the Pride video, which is an obscene video. It's kind of had, start, opens with like a cutesy image of someone who's clearly had a double mastectomy, which is already weird. And then it goes into this thing talking about how, how you know, LGBTQI plus people are just, are just attacked across the internet and preyed on. Uh, people. A lot of people have got this screenshot where they're preyed on by, what is the phrase? Hate groups online and offline. And it has a picture 
And what people have worked out is J.K. Rowling. And even if it's not, it's bad enough. It's a woman with red eyes looking evil and it just and with a badge saying turf. And people think it's very much based on this J.K. Rowling picture of her with a poppy and they've changed that to turf. It does look very, very similar. And then the person next to, next to her is almost certainly Ron DeSantis, looks exactly like him. And people have been speculating the other one is Andy No. No one quite knows who the other one is. But that one's a sort of vaguely racist depiction as, uh, of a sort of Asian person. So this has just gone so badly. And if you watch the video, it was so chilling and weird. But it got so attacked by Twitter, they've now actually deleted the video in another epic fail, much like the British Library. And they've now posted, we've removed the post because of concerns raised with us. We will repost shortly, hashtag protect the pride. And that tweet itself has been brutally ratioed into oblivion, one of the worst ratios I've ever seen. So people are getting so sick of this. They're, of course, they're sick of the attacks on women. And and what did I say for the original advert? I just, I just said, horrific ad promoting cutesy images of mutilation and nasty caricatures of women who believe in basic science. Don't give money to these vile organizations. We have to go full target Bud Light on their ass, basically. I mean, there was another advert they did as well. As countless countries deny LGBTQIA plus rights by poisoning the public conscious, which didn't even make sense. They meant consciousness. Internalized homophobia is one of the weapons deployed to create doubt. It's just, I call it moronic cultist dribble. I mean, what has happened to Oxfam? I'm not sure if they're ever great. They've had a lot of scandals, but this is another, this is awful. What do you think, Tim? Yeah, it's it's odd, isn't it, how pride has become completely hijacked um, by the T's. Um, you know, it's not about the LGBs or even the Qs. God knows who the pluses are. It's about the T's and all these virtue signaling woke charities and companies um, are just trying to advertise the fact that they are now fully signed up to the whole gender identity ideology. Um, uh, and it's it's um, it's it's sort of, as you say, it's disturbing. I mean, uh, you know, last time I checked, uh, gender dysphoria was still classified as a mental disorder in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So why should people feel proud? Um, I mean, you know, of course, there are, I'm sure, some genuine uh, cases of people um, who um, are better off um, post transitioning, um, but um, I think that that's that 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 that's a very small percentage of the population. And to try and encourage anyone who thinks they may have been born in the wrong body or who is having doubts about their gender, uh, to encourage them to, you know, um, transition and to demonize anyone who tries to protect single sex women's spaces. It's just totally bizarre. And there will be a reckoning. And it, it just for Oxfam, you know, you'd think that a charity which depends for its existence on donations from well-wishers would try and avoid antagonizing people who in the past have given given the organization money. It's as though Oxfam is on this mission to destroy itself by antagonizing every conceivable group that in the past has given the organization money. I mean, it won't be long before Oxfam shops, you know, uh, are smoking ruins on our high streets. Not that I'm encouraging anyone to firebomb them, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. No, uh, yeah. Uh, and have you noticed how, um, you know, 
people have begun to stop talking about Pride Month. The reason all these stories are kind of hitting at the moment is because June is Pride Month. They've started talking about the summer of Pride. So Pride has been extended now to three months. And it won't be long, I'm sure, before every month is Pride Month. And um, yeah, and we're, we're beginning to see, you know, what, what, what were rainbow flags are becoming rainbow murals, kind of. So they're permanent. They're not just, you know, flying during the month of June. They're now permanently on the face of public buildings, particularly hospitals. Um, so, uh, yeah, we'll look back on this era, Nick, with rose-tinted spectacles. We'll feel nostalgic about the time when Pride was just a month and not 12 months a year. Yeah, and I'm suggesting Shame Month in July. Every July, we cleanse ourselves from Pride Month. We have Shame Month where we look at all the degeneracy of this culture and all the things we've got to be ashamed of, and we purge them and go back to celebrating our roots and the good things about our culture. So we, we purge all this woke stuff. We call it shame. Shame month. It's just a, just a proposal I haven't heard anyone you know, else say. You know, you know what that's going to be called by the woke? They're going to call it hate month. Hate and, month, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Summer of shame. That's what I'm advocating. <laughs> and we cleanse finally all wokeness. Um, do you have any more, Toby, or is that all your peak I think wokes? that's pretty much it for my peak wokes. Okay. I should very quickly note that Utah primary schools banned the Bible for vulgarity and violence. Just throw that in at the end, quick peak woke. <laughs> they actually banned the Bible. It had to happen. It was always going to happen. They claimed that it was there was indecent images and stuff. There was incest, onanism, bestiality, prostitution. And this was clearly an attempt to hit back at, because some books actually have to be banned by people like DeSantis, of banning these things that are sexualized books for children that are completely inappropriate. So they're kind of hitting back and go, what about the Bible then? So it's become this, it's, it's kind of a, you know, tit for tat thing where it, that's what's going to happen. It's going to be wokeness versus Christianity. That's where it always had to go. And they were always going to ban the Bible. And I think we'll see more of that. And it's absolutely horrendous. So that's peak woke. A couple of reviews, maybe Toby. Yep. Before we end this, this episode it wasn't meant to be this long, but um, you know, people like the long ones. So Daphne Von Toad says, highly entertaining. Love you guys, the podcast and the information and counter arguments you present. Slightly controversial. Oh, here's another good one. A lifesaver. Have I read this one before? Feeling unsafe around the wokesters in your life. Protect yourself by listening to Nick, Toby and Will, all peak blokes. So that's good. I actually can't remember if I've read that before. But someone else has said here, quite controversially, no man is a she. And giving it two stars, we get nearly all five stars. Toby, why are you persisting calling drag queen she? Drag queens are not trans, they are a costume, an act, and are clearly he. Furthermore, why do you also persist in calling attention-seeking trans activists such as Dylan Mulvaney she? I thought we dealt with that. He's a he who deliberately parodies young women, and he says that, you know, Nick can correct you, but you continue to indulge in these activities, or these indulge these activists. The weekly skeptic is otherwise an interesting listen, but please stop this pronoun misuse. If it's, if it's otherwise an interesting listen, just quickly, don't give it two stars. Because that's very, very harsh. And Toby, I know you're just doing that because it's hard to keep up with all the nonsense. This is not an ideological statement from you. No, sometimes it's ironic and sometimes it's just um, uh, unconscious. It's just, you know, not thinking about it. Yeah, and the case I want to make to our listeners is do not give us two stars because now we've we've gone down from 4.9 to 4.8 average. And the point is, you're not theatre critics in the 80s. We don't actually need these reviews to like, should I see this play or not? The reviews are really a way to support us. And 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 that's why they should be five stars. Here's my case, because when you give it two stars, you're actually doing the woke's work for them. This will seem a self-serving argument. You really are though, because if you are a listener and you like the show, then you're like, right, 
two stars because Toby said one wrong thing. You're damaging the podcast, which we do, you get for free, which is a huge amount of labor. It's a labor of love. We're not really making money from it. So it's like, you know, why do that to the podcast that you actually like? Don't you think that's a fair argument, Toby? I think that's a fair argument. Yeah. I think it's a bit mean spirited just because I, 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 in the eyes of one of our listeners, misgendered someone. Um, uh, <laughs> that, that that somehow give us two stars does seem a little bit a little bit uncharitable. Particularly, it brings down our overall rating, which is which was before this very high. I think it was four point yeah, exactly. nine. This has brought it down to four point eight. Yeah, these kind of views have knocked it down. And 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 what you're doing is, yeah, if you like the podcast, give it five stars. It just means you like the podcast and you're supporting it. If you don't, don't listen. It's that simple. There's no real need to review bomb it like the wokes would do if they got hold of it. So that's my case there. So have a little think about your actions there. Um, but you can always write what you think in the review. I'm going to allow you that. <laughs> but um, and I would quickly urge people while we're here to go to my other podcast, which still does have a 4.9 average for now. Uh, with, and I've just released one with Laura Frost so my podcast, The Current Thing. If you somehow haven't listened, it's growing. It's doing very well. It's on all platforms. It's called The Current Thing with me, Nick Dixon, your your friend from The Weekly Skeptic. And we just released one with Laura Frost. We have a great one with Andrew Lawrence. Got Andrew Doyle coming up. Loads of great episodes in the can or in the diary. And um, Laura Frost is a fan of this podcast, of course, Toby. And that's why he first heard about it. He, he loved The Weekly Skeptic live. And he said, shall I go on your podcast? So... Props to him for that total Great. legend. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I'm going to listen to that. And I, little, I really like the Andrew Lawrence one, which I did listen to. Um, I, I just wanted to give a quick plug to Lockdown Skeptics Live. Um, we've got two live performances in which I'll be interviewing Isabel Oakeshott. Um, uh, there's, I think, there, there, there is, I think, one remaining VIP dinner ticket uh, for this Saturday, June the 10th, at Unheard. Uh, so you'll get to watch me interview Isabel. You'll be able to see a couple of actors read out some of the more embarrassing parts of the WhatsApp messages, such as when Matt Hancock and Gina and his spin doctor are discussing what line to put out after the sun broke the picture of Matt snogging Gina. That's very funny. We're going to have actors doing this bit, two actors, one playing Matt, another one playing Boris. Um, should be very entertaining. Um, we're doing it at Unheard on June 10th. Still, I think one ticket left, one VIP dinner ticket, and you also get a three-course meal and half a bottle of wine, uh, which you can enjoy with me and Isabel afterwards. But in addition, um, we've got a performance coming up at the Hippodrome on Tuesday, June 13th. Starts at 7.30. The Hippodrome, of course, is in Leicester Square. It'll be me on stage interviewing Isabel Oakeshott about the lockdown files, and we'll also have the actors uh, doing their extracts from Matt Hancock's WhatsApp messages. So if you want to buy tickets to either night, and there are, there are, there are I think we sold about 240 out of 300 at the Hippodrome, so there are still 60 tickets left to snap up there, only 25 quid. It's going to be a very entertaining night. If you want to buy tickets to that or to the VIP dinner at Unheard, go to eventbrite.com and Google, just Google Eventbrite and Lockdown Files Live, and you'll pull up that uh, those tickets. All right, yeah, go to that. Toby's unfairly maligned Lockdown Files event. It sounds like it's going to be fun and, and very good to me. I don't know why it's been attacked so much. And um, by the way, just a quick note, I think I must be the only person that's mates with Lord Frost and Tristan Tate. I mean, no one saw that crossover coming, right? <laughs> just a quick note there. But um, all right, I think that's it from us. Long episode, but hopefully you'll enjoy it. And until next week, stay skeptical. Stay skeptical. Stay skeptical.